but mainly it was aimed at like eight to 12 year old girls, maybe younger. I took my four year old. Um, my four year old uh, went to the movies with my wife and her friend to go see Pitch Perfect 2 when that was in theaters. And while she might not have really understood the narrative, she was at least able to appreciate the music. And from what my wife tells me, she would get up in the aisle and she would dance during the acapella numbers and whatever. And I said, okay. At the very least, no matter how bad this movie may actually be, it should capture her interest based on the music. And I'll tell you two things, and then and then uh, we'll move on from this. But at the end of the movie, I asked my daughter, what did you think of it? And she said, can we go home and play with water balloons? And during the movie, she could not sit still. This movie was so boring to her. How boring was it? It was so boring that she spent the entire time pacing the row that we were sitting. Thank God the theater was empty. But she spent the entire time pacing, <laughs> pacing the row that we were sitting in, throwing herself on the floor, leaning up against me. At, we needed one body break and the occasional trying to get the phone out of my hand so that she could play the cooking game, as she calls it. Oh, certainly sounds like a movie that hit its target demographics. Yeah, I don't even think she liked the song. Okay, that Young Blood song, that was the big feature of this movie. Yeah, I'm pretty sure she wasn't she wasn't into it. Um, I'll actually one last thing cuz it was a very frustrating day for me. You know, I don't particularly enjoy when I take my daughter out and she doesn't behave well and you know, part of it is she was bored of the movie, but um <coughs> excuse me. <clears throat> My wife was talking to her, and my wife usually, can, being a teacher, can usually break it down so that my daughter will understand her and able to answer the questions appropriately. So she was trying to get from Lily, like, what did you think the movie was about? And Lily said, the mean girl lost her keys. That's what okay. she got out of this. <laughs> Okay, Juliette Lewis didn't have keys to her limo. We're talking about a particular scene in the movie towards the end, um, and I'll explain that uh, after a little while. But so, like, you know, we're talking about a 90-minute movie here, and she, and all she got out of it was one particular scene, and that's it. The mean girl couldn't find her keys. That's what Gemini Hologram was about, folks. Going to my four-year-old. Well, I was gonna say, yeah. Again, leading up to this, I kind of made some, you know, deeply sarcastic and snarky remarks about this movie, what it would be about, and how it would play out. Was I wrong, Mark? I haven't it, seen it. I haven't even read a plot synopsis, so I'm going to leave that up to you. So, was I wrong? Yeah, and if you had been right, it would have been a better movie. <laughs> all right, explain the plot to all the good people out there who were smart enough with their money not to see this. Um, the plot of a movie is that if you put yourself on YouTube, you might get famous, and that YouTube is a thing. <laughs> That's the plot. All right. So um, uh, let let me see if I can get this right. You've got a quasi-outsider, lonely girl. Not too outside because she has at least, you know, four friends. But she doesn't fit in very well with others, and she discovers she has a talent for singing, which one of her friends convinces her to put on YouTube. She becomes a mild sensation, is briefly corrupted by the record industry, rejects the record industry in favor of friendship, and for some reason they shoehorn in a CGI'd robot. No, that's not right. Here's All the right. plot of the movie. 
we have uh, four adopted sisters living with their aunt, who is Molly Ringwall, and Molly <laughs> Ringwall and Molly Ringwall is about to lose the house. So the daughters are trying to plot a way to make money, and and uh, one of the sisters uh, overshares. She puts everything up on the internet. She's constantly running around with a camera. So we have a lot of like found footage type shots in this movie. Um, we also have a lot of YouTube videos that act as ambiance music or our um, you know first person uh, first person interviews with people who tell, who are saying how much they love Jim and how Jim has changed their life. But I'll, I'll get to that in a second. So Molly Ringwald is about to lose the house, and the girls are plotting uh, ways that they can raise money so that they can keep the house and, be, and stay together because they're going to end up being split up. Um, did any of them so bring up yoga. prostitution? Because I hear that's a thing. Uh, it did not come up, but I'm pretty sure it was implied. Um, <laughs> so, so you have the so you have the the blood sister um, because again they're, they're all technically sisters, but like two of them were adopted, and then the other two, um, their parents have passed away, um, but they are biological sisters to one another. So the younger sister is, and and this part of the movie I missed, but um, she was. They were like recording music, and they, you know, and they thought that if they, they were like playing around in the garage and uploading all of this stuff to the internet, and they go to the, they go to the star, uh, Jerrica, and she's like, oh, you know, you, you know, you should sing one of your songs, and she says, no, I'm afraid. So, the next sequence is her trying to record um, an acoustic song, and upload it to YouTube, which she find, which she chickens out and decides not to do. Well, her sister does it for her, and within 24 hours, she is uh, bombarded with people sending her messages telling her how great she is, <laughs> and and a handful of people telling her that she sucks. Um, so she doesn't well, pay think, any fine. You know, given how, what I know of the internet culture, I would think the reverse of that would be true. Well, you know, look, I, she, it, the, she's, the song itself is not bad, and so it wasn't that Youngblood song. Um, the song itself is not bad, and she doesn't have a terrible voice. So, I mean, it was what it was. Um, so, now, it, she's using an alias at this point. So, no one knows who she is and how half her face is covered, and she's wearing a wig when she uploads this video. So, she refers to herself as Jem, because that's what her dad used to call her. And uh, the sister uploads the video overnight. People love it. Um Starlight Records contacts the YouTube account and, and, and is interviewed on the news saying, Jem, if you're out there, we're interested in you. <clears throat> so because they are in need of cash, they sign a, uh, a deal with Starlight. And initially, Starlight was only interested in Jem, but Jem said it's either me and my sisters or nothing at all. So in order to get Jem, they just agree and say, okay, fine, bring your sisters along. Now, <clears throat> at this point, the only music that's been in this, and we're, we're about 30 minutes into the movie at this point, and the only music that has, uh, that has been shown is the, is the YouTube video that, you know, that, that she recorded. This is the first problem with the movie. It took way too long to get to any music. And what music there was, you know, it was like, okay, for the moment that it was on screen, but like, if you're trying to capture a young audience, you're going to want to fill the movie up with more music than this. Like, it doesn't have to be Lame as a Rob or anything, but still, let's, let's, let's get going here. Let's get to the band already. So, uh, 
this is where the movie takes a weird turn. So they, they get to Starlight, and the first thing they do is they make this whole, they make them all over. You know, Juliette Lewis plays the evil executive, and she she says to all the girls, their looks are terrible, and she's she's going to get them made over. Still no music, by the way. The next sequence is she moves them into a mansion and has her son uh, be their handler and watch over them. And this is where the movie subplot kicks in, because at this point she's carrying around an AI robot that her father built before he died, which magically comes to life once they moved into this house, which starts Jem on a scavenger hunt for parts for this thing, leading to, at the end of the movie, a message from her dad from the grave. All right. I'm not even joking about that. I that's... I know. If I thought you were joking, I would have laughed. A large portion of this movie deals with the scavenger hunt. I'm not. I mean, there's an entire elongated sequence of them going to appear to find one part of this robot, which then leads to a, a, another subplot of Jerrica and Rico getting to know one another and forming a relationship, which is not horrible in, in, in a movie narrative. But again, you're you're just moving so far away from music and the band and the whole reason people came to watch this movie in the first place. So all you've gotten in this movie so far is all this girl is interested in is saving the is saving the ant's house, a scavenger hunt to find uh, robot parts, and a relationship with this guy. That's it. That's the movie so far. Um, this all leads to about <laughs> half an hour later. Uh, they finally get to do a show. They play one song, and in the middle of the song, the lights go out, which also conveniently is one of the places on the scavenger hunt. <laughs> the lights because, go out. hey, why not? Yeah, sure. The lights go out. They have no power. Um, Jerrica decides to pull a guitar off the wall, which that turns out was her father's, which is hiding the next piece of the robot. Uh, they finish the song. It becomes because a Deus Ex Machina. <laughs> Juliette Lewis is way impressed that she was not said that she didn't let the entire gig fall apart, and then, we're, you know, that scene ends, and we're into the next scene back at the mansion. Now I'm a little fuzzy here because I had to take Lily to the bathroom, but basically what ends up happening is you have Rico who's falling in love with Jerrica, um, and basically tells her mother this, and her mother says, "Okay, well, you know, you're you're letting your personal feelings get involved with this kid, so I'm gonna kick you out of the house." You, you know, so Jubler some self-control. And then there's a conversation between Jerrica and the aunt that basically says, you know how we had a month to get the payment to, you know, for the mortgage on the farm? Yeah, well, you know, they moved it up two weeks. So, you know, we're going to be out of the house by the end of this week. Conveniently, Juliet Lewis shows up with a new contract that's, that's just for uh, Jem, a solo contract with more money, which she signs so that they can save the house. We went to the bathroom. I came back. Sisters are yelling at her, saying, I'm done with this. You've lied to us for too long. I don't know if I missed something. Given what you've described, I'm going to assume not, that they just made that giant logical leap. Yeah, basically, like, I guess before the gig, she told them that that everything was okay. And then after the gig, she told them, oh, I've signed a solo contract. Sorry. And they all say you suck and walk out on her which she so did, their by response the way. to i've managed to save the family farm is screw you we want to be famous too correct all right partially unlikable characters got it 
So they do show a gig where she's where she's solo and she's fine. There's no you know, she doesn't crack under the pressure, the song isn't terrible, people love it, people love her, it's it works out just perfectly fine. Um then there's a, but at the end of it, she's alone. And that's what the whole song was about. You know, it is that she's alone now and she wants her family and her family has walked out on her is essentially the, what I got from the song there. So she sings the song, she's very sad, and she decides she's made a terrible mistake, that she needs her family around her. Um, so she goes to her old family home and they all catch up with her there and they decide that they're going to get her contract, I guess, from the safe. <laughs> um, What's this? Wait a minute. <laughs> yeah, this, 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 this is what led to Juliet Lewis doesn't have keys to her car. They, they basically, t- there's a valet that, uh, that, keeps, that keeps the keys. They get the valet to give him the keys, and then, when, and then when Juliet Lewis shows up, the valet no longer has the keys, and so she's yelling at him. The kid, all my daughter was able to pick up on. Um, Heck, get the that's keys. all I'm able to pick up on so far. <laughs> they get the keys to the limo. They drive the limo into the into Starlight Building. They sneak into the into the office. They they hack the safe, and uh, they find because these are all oh, skills was, possessed by you know sixteen year old girls. Yeah, I okay. I now I remember why she needed to. Okay. Somewhere, somewhere along the line, after she makes up with her sister, she realizes she needs her earrings in order to power the robot. That's what it was. And the earrings, Juliet Lewis had told her, suck and should be locked up in a safe. So the earrings are in the safe in, in Juliet Lewis's office. Underneath that, <coughs> sorry, is Rico's dad's will. Um. So he could take. Oh, please tell me! It actually turns out he's the one in charge of the studio. You guessed it. The way that he wrote the will was when Rico felt he was ready, the company was his. That's it. That's a poorly worded. That's a legal (laughs) binding document. You can't be nebulous about this stuff. Yes, that's all it said. When whatever lawyer uh, allowed him to do that should be shot. So the. So he had been led to believe that he would be willed the, the, the company when his mother was ready to give it up, but actually uh, she was only keeping it warm until he was ready to take it over, which he decides now is the time. Oh, sure. Meanwhile, Jem has her earrings, uh, and the earrings uh, are actually like two pieces of a key that unlock the robot, and out comes a message from Princess Leia saying that Obi-Wan Kenobi is her only hope. No, um... <laughs> So it's a message from her father that basically says, sorry, I spent too much time working on this fucking robot. I should spend more time with you, but you should, but you're special and you should, and you should always be true to yourself. The next sequence is this final gig that they're doing. And, um, you know, the whole band's there and Juliet Lewis is like, what the fuck? What are you people doing here? And that's when Rico's like, Oh, I, I'm taking over the company and you're fired mom. And they quickly usher her out the door. The band plays their last gig, but before that, they do an I Spartacus, uh, which is which is uh, Jerica takes the stage and says, you know, essentially it's half Spartacus, half the Dark Knight. 
You know, Batman was was always meant to be a symbol. Anyone could be the Batman. Well, same thing with Jem. Anyone can be Jem. It's just, it was just a mask, a disguise, a holographic projection, if you will, to hide her real to hide her real. I, self. I'm gonna go with no, I won't. And how dare you? <laughs> Shoehorn that kind of crap in there. Um, and so she points into the crowd and she says, "You can, you're Jem, and you're Jem, and you're Jem." And everyone's like, "Yeah, I'm Jem, and I'm Spartacus." So and we've com- we've combined the you know histrionics of Oprah with a great cinematic sequence, and we've got this. Yeah. They play their final gig, and, and they move on from there, and that's the movie. Now, along the way, there's a bunch of video camera footage of this band and what they're doing. Um, also, there are a bunch of YouTube videos spliced in, some in some cases for musical effect, like someone doing a drum solo, and then you, and instead of just you know hearing the drums, you actually see the video. And there's long stretches of just YouTube commentary about Jem. So I imagine they got to the end of shooting and realized, oh, crap, we need uh, 10 more minutes. I would tell you that they YouTube. Here's the, this is what I said to my wife. I said, I have a funny feeling this was a, this script was originally called YouTube Famous and that it had nothing to do with Jem. But the studio took it and was like, okay, what can we attach, attach this to that's already a franchise that, people, that will attract people to the theater because no one's coming to see this fucking movie. Oh, Gem and the Hologram was a thing. So we'll just make the characters Gem and the Holograms. Okay, well, they had a, they had a computer in, the, in Gem and the Holograms called Synergy. Um, right in the subplot about a robot that does nothing except project a message of her dead father. <sighs> This is why we can't have nice things, you know. <laughs> I apologize. Um, that's one of the biggest gripes about this movie is that it, it completely ignores the source material, but it doesn't. It, but it ignores it in favor of nothing good. It was, I was like, because well, I was expecting. Them to, I was totally expecting them to ignore, the, you know, what Jem really is. I knew there were going to be any misfits in this, who was the, the evil band in the cartoon. I figured it was going to be like you said. You know, it was going to be, you know, girl, gets fa- girl uploads video of herself on YouTube. Girl gets famous. Um, girl lets it go to her head. Girl turns on her family. Girl realizes she's done something terrible, makes up with family, learns a lesson about life. And along the way, there would be a lot of music. And I was prepared for that. What I Do you got think that was, might have sucked a little bit less if my sarcastic, snarky predictions were accurate? No, I was waiting for it. <laughs> I, I now visualize you sitting in the theater going, man, Robert told me this wasn't going to be this bad. It was like someone decided to write an essay about how you how you know, people get famous on YouTube and what that does to them and and, and, and how it affects the culture, and decided that, okay, that essay needs to be a full-length movie. Because that's all this is. This is a dissertation on being famous via YouTube. All righty, then. That, that sounds awful. That just sounds <laughs> awful. 
listen, when the four-year-old who likes to sing and dance and, you know, will usually thwart my, uh, my kung fu with her ballerina moves isn't interested in the movie, you've lost. Good day, sir. <laughs> you have, there is nothing savable about this movie. And look, source material is not a sacred cow that cannot be slaughtered, depending on what you're doing. If I'm uh, no, understanding but, but, you correctly, they decided to. I know someone like, disagrees with you. I don't care. If you know <laughs> what you're doing, you can modify source material to suit the narrative. Correct. And people who hold source material up as sacred cow, how dare you possibly alter anything that was ever written in this when you make it into a movie? Never mind that it's a completely different medium. <sighs> That's just ignorance and stupidity, and I'm happier imagining this than I am paying to see it in the theater. Then just don't go see it. But it sounds to me like you know they had a halfway interesting, not even a halfway interesting idea, but they had this idea that some you know cousin of a network executive cooked up, and his sister then decided to hold you know the family pig hostage. <laughs> make this into a movie he's going to be a star fine fine we'll make it into a movie man this is crap uh, I can't do anything with this but what's a way to sucker people into seeing it well 80's nostalgia is a thing you intern find me something from the 80's not already a movie So intern threw a dart at a list on a dartboard came up with Gem and the Holograms I want to read this real quick. This is Molly Lambert from Grantland. What it lacks in humor makes up for its sheer weirdness. It's a masterclass, and how did this get get made? It feels focus groups to within an inch of its life, but it's so strange that it's impossible to imagine what led us here, what process led us here. Uh, I'm going to go with that. Sounds about right. <laughs> yeah. Here, here's another. Here's another one. There's hardly any tension, barely any drama, and the sugar high you might expect from an 80s reduct is replaced by dull aspartame buzz. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, I was, you know, again, I was expecting this to be a kid's movie. I was expecting it to be bright and shiny and, you know, like, you look at, you look at... Colorful and loud in the best way possible and happy. And I I expected there to be shit tons of music in it. And there isn't. (laughs) Um... And that's the thing, like the rest of the movie is very dull. And I'm, and I'm talking about like the uh, the cinematography. It's very dull. It feels like half of the scene just shot in the dark. They spend so much time in this fucking house and nothing happens. Or they're off chasing parts of a robot. Like they might as well, honestly, if they, if they were gonna do this movie and not really base it on, if they just wanted to make a girl power movie, you know, about being true to yourself and everything else, they really should have just left the robot out. You know, or if they were going to have the robot... That's usually a smart idea. Anytime you have put a robot into a movie, ask yourself, can this be made better without the robot? Well, I I feel like they threw in the subplot with the dad in there because they they didn't feel like they had enough movie. Well, then then go back to the drawing board and try again. You know, the... the, The, the thing of it is, this all takes place within a, within a month. You know, it's, the, their whole, 
the whole thing with Starlight and Gem was that they wanted to keep her a mystery in order to, you know, in order to raise the stakes and, and garner interest in the general public. So they would do these three pop-up shows, which I was okay with, but then there should have been more than that. Like, once they did, they should have gotten to the three pop-up shows, and they should have sent the band on tour. And, it, you know, and, and it, that's what I mean. Like, I think I missed something here, because... When they say, you know, she's got a so she instead of having her sign a solo contract, they should have had her do like they did, and you didn't see the NWA biopic, but there was a whole thing where Easy E's contract was different than everybody else's in NWA, at least within the movie. I don't want to get into what real life happened, but um, within the movie, uh, Easy E's contract was different than Ice Cube's and everybody else's. Meanwhile, Ice Cube wrote half the album, and they knew this while they were on tour and got to the end of the tour and Ice Cube said, are you going to rewrite my contract? And basically the answer was no, piss off. And that's when he left. And this should have copied that note for note. This should have been somewhere along the line, Juliet Lewis, you know, um, takes advantage uh, of this young impressionable girl and gets her to sign a new contract. And the, uh, and, you see all these, you know, they see you see her getting on different television shows, and she's, you know, she gets a separate limo to gigs and everything else, and you know, and is being separated from her sisters over the course of a tour, and then by the end of it, you know, when they get when they get their checks, and the girls are all talking, they're like, well, what did you get? What did you get? And then you know, Jen gets this ridiculous check, and they're like, what the fuck? What happened here? We were all we all signed the same contract, I'm like, well. I signed a different contract. What? How did you whore? You know, <laughs> We've been across the entire country together, and you've been... <laughs> and you're only now telling us this? And then they walk off from her, and, you know, and then, like, then have, the, you know, another part of the movie have her go solo. And it, not in over the course of one-night show does she realize, oh, I miss my family. Let it go for a while, you know? Let her look forlornly out a window after a couple of shows thinking, why am I so alone? I have everything now. They just, there's, there's no elements of good storytelling in this movie. They just crammed a bunch of shit into a sausage and said, and stamped Gem and the Holograms on it and said, oh, crossing fingers, hope that's enough. Well, since that's all that there is to say about the narrative and the craft of it, uh, shame on everyone involved in this. You want to talk about the music? No, I was going to get you to talk about the financials of it. Oh, okay. Five million dollars they made this thing on. Now, normally, if you get a movie with a five million dollar budget and can actually get it to a wide release, you're going to be okay financially. That's not a lot to make back. It's a good, uh, plenty of horror movies, first entries into what become franchises. You know, things that studios are just kind of willing to gamble on have a 5 to 10 million dollar budget if they hit big then you know they make 40 to 50 and you know we're in the money 5 million dollar budget mark how is this thing doing getting its money back uh 1.8 million <laughs> this roughly, ladies and gentlemen roughly one fifth its 5 million dollar budget over its opening weekend has it been released pretty much everywhere um, I'm going to go with yes. I'll tell you right. about that. So, despite having a relatively minuscule budget for a wide-release movie, this thing's going to bomb. 
and it's going to bomb hard. What what cracks me up is that there are whole articles written on how, like, this bomb, like, there are articles now that are being written about how, like, this is bombing in a a very new way. (laughs) (laughs) You have redefined. Yeah, this movie redefines bombing. See, there's bombing like Tomorrowland or Pan. Or what was the other major bomb? Can't remember. There was one. There's one other one that we've talked about that was just flat out awful. And then there's. Sorry, what was that? Go ahead. I I feel like Terminator critically bombed, but it actually made money eventually. Uh, After it got released in China, it made money. So. Yeah. Well, I don't do uh, earlier this year Jupiter ascending. That's what that's one of the okay, biggest losses. Let's go with the year. let's go with that one then. Sure. Again, there's okay. We've got a hundred and thirty plus, in some cases, much plus million dollars invested in this movie. We're gonna just you know we're gonna market it. We're gonna put commercials and posters, and we're gonna get people to go see it, and people just deciding no. Hey, look, it's Jupiter Ascending. Those those Wachowski brothers haven't done anything decent since the, you know, Matrix or V for Vendetta, depending on, you know, perspectives. Uh, But Mila Kunis, no. But Channing Tatum, no. But look at all the pretty, no. Just no one wants to see this. Or Pan, where no one knows quite what it is, including everyone who made it. Or Tomorrowland, where, well, it's a Disney movie, and hey, George Clooney. People like George Clooney, right? Right? Yeah, no. Those are, the, again, those types of bombs are, I hate to say par for the course for a major studio, but that's, you're going to get those. You're going to get movies that you wind up investing way too much money in, that get wide releases, that just miss the mark for whatever reason. Then there's something like this. What's the smallest amount of money we can possibly invest into this? Uh, Five million. We'll get it actually into wide release. We've got to make that back just on, you know, 80s nostalgia and, you know, the preteen girls who like songs, right? No. You see, somehow you took what should have been a surefire at least profitable. You have a small budget, you should be able to make your money back. You failed. Congratulations. You have now failed more so in this one area than anything I can remember off the top of my head. Bravo. (laughs) So John Chu, I don't think, really understood what he was getting himself into and is now very bitter about this. He he, He apparently gave a talk and he's been talking, and he's been saying it's like, yeah, Hollywood's kind of a weird place to be right now. I just this is this movie, Gem in the Holograms, and I'm receiving death threats. Okay. Why would you threaten dude. someone with death? Because they were involved I mean, in a crappy movie. Okay, director John Cuse's brutally honest talk. Skip. Damn it. Okay, uh, director John Tuke is brutally honest. Talk to him to Gem and the Hologram Bombs. Um, 
Gemini Hong. So this is a bit awkward. Chu, a 2002 project involved fellow, began as he stepped onto the podium and immediately addressed the elephant in the room. The director of G.I. Joe Retaliation and Step Up 3D told the audience that he had been working with producer Jason Blum on developing Gemini to a feature film for the past decade. But unfortunately, fans of the 1980s cartoon series weren't supportive of the film version. I Wait a minute. Fans... You, you had 10 years to not cock this up. Mm-hmm. You had 10 years to get something passable. And this is the best you could do. Yeah. Um, fans were not supportive of the film version. I get fans sending me hate mail. I get death threats. I get racist remarks. It's a really fun business, he said. Reviews have been hard to say it lightly. Though he credited well, you the make film... crap. You're going to get harsh reviews. So he credited the film studio Universal for being one of the most successful marketing studios in the world. The film was projected to earn roughly $1.2 million in its opening weekend at 2,413 theaters, as the Hollywood Reporter points out, would make it the worst opening ever for a studio release playing in at least 2,000 theaters. Yes, we only made it for $5 million, but it doesn't get easy when you hear those box office numbers said too. I'll probably get some text along the way today saying it's not going well, so this morning isn't the best kind of day. Uh, studio executives. What did you say Elsie's done? G.I. Joe Retaliation. Which is the one with, with fucking the rock in it? Ugh, for a variety of reasons. Look, I should love that movie because Channing Tatum dies on screen, but that can't save it. Well, Joe Retaliation wasn't that bad. It certainly wasn't this level bad. No, it wasn't. I'll give you that, and it wasn't even as bad as the first one. However, if you remove just Dwayne Johnson being freaking awesome. And Bruce Willis there for a paycheck. Uh, narratively speaking, that movie is a mess. So here's the here's the question I always have, and I re- and I really don't know. And, and and this is sort of a casual heroes. We're just taking random guesses thing. But was it really his vision? Did he look at Jim and the Holograms and um, you know and see this sort of secret identity fun cartoon where? Uh, where a, you know a computer projects a hologram over you know over these people, um, they sing songs and they solve mysteries and get involved in adventures and all of that, and they deal with an evil band called the Misfits who play better music. Um, did he really look at all that and decide this was the best approach to it and, and like stands by it, or did he have a different vision and kind of like Josh Trank, the studio got involved and said, nope, we're not doing this, we're not doing this, we're not doing this, fuck this, get this out of there. Because like, I, do get the, I do get the feeling that with the, with the overuse of YouTube and camera footage shown in this movie, like they were going, they were, like, you know, that, that remark, this, this seemed to be focus group to death or focus group within an inch of its life. It's as if people were sitting around and he had a narrative and they was okay, but you got to throw found footage in there because the kids like that. And throw YouTube in there because the kids like that too. And, like, if, if the premise of your movie is girl uploads video of herself singing, gets famous, you know, uh, hilarity ensues, <laughs> I'm okay with that if that's the only time you're going to use YouTube. But if half of your footage is just YouTube videos that neither advance the plot or I don't, you know, like, if, if you just want to show a montage of people sort of expressing their feelings about Gem once, 
you can get away with it. When it's two and three times and four times throughout the movie, alongside of other YouTube videos, it just seems like you're relying on that too much. Like, I if you want to have that as part of a montage, well, you you know, as like faded visuals over them doing shows on tour, then fine. That's an accepted trope. I was I, I recently watched um, a, a uh, an everything wrong with Spider Man thing, and you know, and they they did the thing where they were panning to different people, one of which was comedian Jim Norton. You know, what are your thoughts on Spider Man? He's a hero. What are your thoughts on Spider Man? He, I love him. You know, what are your thoughts on Spider Man? He stinks, and I don't like him. Jim Norton. Um, if you don't want to do it the traditional way like they did in Spider-Man and you want to use YouTube videos, to do it, that's fine, but you can only get away with that once. Yeah. I, I walked out of Gem in the Holograms thinking, well, my, I know what I'm going to do for my next movie. I'm just going to string together YouTube videos and have a loose narrative. You know, as far as was that his vision, here's my big gripe about my – not gripe. That's the wrong word. If I were to apply logic to this, Josh Trang's version of the Fantastic Four failed miserably, first of all, because he didn't actually want to make that movie. He did not communicate to the studio. The studio did not communicate with him. We talked at length about the number of idiots who are involved in that, and it's basically everyone. With this instant, and the the reason I believe the studio kind of got involved in that was more because, hey, look, it's a comic book property. Marvel makes money with these. We want to make money with these too. Do what they do. And because I think I know what they do, I'm going to stick my nose into this at every single opportunity. And I so much so that your nightmares are now fueled by pictures of business executives with bad ponytails saying we have notes. <laughs> And uh, again, when you have and again, when you have that much money behind a property like the Fantastic Four, you're gonna get studio involvement because it's a large budget. It's supposed to be a you know a tentpole property. We want spinoffs. We want crossovers. We want this to be big. Yeah, they're gonna stick their noses into it. I have a really hard time imagining major studio executives looking this over, going. Well, boy, you know, we've put a whole five million into this. We sure better, uh, you know, interfere in this as much as possible because we can't trust a filmmaker with five million dollars. I mean, if you if I were had to guess, this had as much to do with him not having a concise vision and his own insecurities leading him to be focus grouped to death. Because, again, a filmmaker with a distinct vision who knows what they're doing understands how focus groups should work properly or just doesn't care about them at all. And if you're insecure about what you've done, you care about what other people say about it. And I ha if I were to guess, he was very insecure about what he had and apparently with quite good reason. Yeah, and it's... It's a shame. You know, like I said, I wasn't a huge gem fan, but, like, my wife was. And, like, and I remember her saying, like, <clears throat> sorry, I apologize to all of our listeners. I nothing I can do about this cough. Um, but I remember her, like, I refuse to go to this movie out of protest. Okay? <laughs> like, she felt that strongly about it. My wife doesn't protest shit. Okay? <laughs> She's not. 
you the only thing she's passionate about is is teaching and her family in that order. So, you know, um, you know, she sure shit ain't passionate about no gem in the holograms. But even this one got her dander up. She was like, I'm not going to see no stupid gem in the holograms movie. And and I and I was reading this article on on Vox.com that was, <clears throat> you know the five lessons we've learned from Gem and the Holograms and one of them was if you're gonna do a movie like this really go for it go you know go crazy go get give us those wild and colorful images from the cartoon don't be afraid and I I was thinking about like Transformers now you and I got into a knockdown drag out last year about um, the Age of Extinction. And I know you're not, you know, tremendously crazy about Michael Bay, but you got to give him credit. He goes for it. He's I don't like, have to I give him play. credit for anything. You have to be fair. Uh, <laughs> yes, I have to be fair. He still sucks. But Michael Bay is like, I want huge explosions, giant robots punching each other, hot babes, and fast cars. And that sums up a Transformers movie. And you know what? People love them. And they keep going to them. Last year, Age of, uh, Transformers Age of Extinction was like, I think it was one of the number one movies released that year. It's made like up to a billion dollars. The whole thing. Hey, who would have thought? Marketing, you know, stupid movies at stupid teenagers makes you money. Really? But, but that's the thing. You know, I was um, I, at work yesterday because I had nothing better to do. I went back and I watched the Half in the Bag review for Dark of the Moon. And I remember, you know, Mike on the review was like, if this is the kind of movie you want to watch, by all means, go watch it. This has an audience. But I'm talking about, like, the, like the director, Michael Bay, doesn't shy away from the things he likes to see in a movie. And he's hit a chord because people will go see those things. So this isn't a discussion of quality <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but, discussion of bad quality, maybe. Um, this is more of if you're gonna do a movie with a silly premise, then then own it. Don't, Go balls don't, to the wall on that. You know, don't half-ass yeah. something like that. Don't take. We don't want a gritty, realistic approach to Gem and the Holograms. For the love of all that's holy. <laughs> you know, if you come to me and like I want to do, you know, something that's based on a silly toy. Okay, then let's go. Then let's go do that. Let's go do a silly toy. I mean, if someone had come to me and said, Mark, you know, we want you to do a Gem and the Holograms movie, I'm putting the fucking misfits in there. You know, I'm having them established already as a band and let, you know, let them, let the misfits cause mayhem and have them in, you know, and have it you know, end with a battle of bands, you know. <laughs> have them sh- have fucking, you know, people shooting lasers at one another with their guitars. Who gives a shit? Yeah, uh, you know, I can't disagree with you. You know, something like that, the only way you're going to actually get it is to legitimately go crazy and over the top with it. Uh, Otherwise, it's Mm going to feel stupid. Kind of like that movie. Um, Are you aware of what's happening right now? Uh, Yeah. You want to go ahead and screen that, and I will start in on Paranormal Activity? Uh, Sure. Give me one second. All right. Uh, California, what's going on? Uh, I got you in the screening room. Oh, shit. Oh, well, Mark was able to 
see Gem and the Holograms with his daughter. I was tasked with reviewing and witnessing Paranormal Activity 5, The Ghost Dimension. I apologize if my audio cut out a little bit there. We're dealing with, you know, blog talk radio. So, apologies. But, well, my, let me just really briefly premise this with how I tend to do these movies that we're going to review. I don't watch them opening night unless I really am interested in seeing the movie. Because all of the local chains around here where I live have a thing on Tuesday where every movie, every showing is $5. If I can save a buck 50 by waiting until Tuesday to go see a movie, yeah, I'm cheap. That was my plan was, all right, I'll go see the first showing on Tuesday. I looked up, you know, the nearest theater to me to find, you know, showing times. Huh? It's not there. Well, it came out this week. All right. From next theater, Next theater. Nope. Nope. <laughs> and I will explain to you why this is a hor- what happened in a minute, but the nearest the showing. <laughs> Sorry, what was that? Did you get the drive to Nevada to go see it? <laughs> no. I, I would I would have had to again an hour drive to find the nearest theater. It had to have been playing in Salt Lake. How far are you from Salt Lake City? About an hour. Okay. Uh, by the way, our caller is Mr. Uh, Jeff Harris, reviewer extraordinaire from 411mania.com, if you would like to bring him on. Yeah, sure. Before I really get into the ghost dimension, all I have right there is how dare they distribute this thing so poorly. Mr. Harris, <laughs> how you doing this evening? Well, they both have the same hack producer, don't they? <laughs> Wouldn't shock me at all. Doesn't Jason Bloom produ- produce all those paranormal activities, or I could be wrong there. Anyway, here's my whole thing with Jem and the holograms. Like, her, her magical earrings and all that, uh, the producer, uh, the, the music executive, Erica Raymond, well, the earrings don't go with your new image and all that, so I'm going to take your earrings, put them in a little box, and I'm going to lock them up in my vault in my office, and you can come and get them later when you're done with whatever you're doing. So then they have a a heist sequence where, you know what? We have to break into my mom's office and steal back my earrings that I own instead of just asking her, hey, you know those earrings? I need them back just to, you know, they have sentimental reasons so I can mail them back home or something. They actually have a heist. They actually have a heist. Steal the earrings that she owns that are rightfully hers that – why does she even give her the earrings in the first place? Just say, okay, I'll put my earrings in my pocket and you'll never see me. What? I mean, that is just sort of the extent of how stupid this damn movie is, okay? And, you know what? I mean, John Chu coming out and getting all, you know, playing the routine. I'm not buying that for a second. You made a bad movie. Feel bad about it, okay? You can come back to this, but, I mean... You made a bad movie, you rejected the fans, you you pretended that you were a fan, which you're clearly not. You you know, just be honest that you messed up. Don't try and say, oh, people are sending me death threats and racist. No one sent you a death threat. No one sent John Chu a death threat. There were no This show was created by a woman in the 1980s at the height of, like, you know, Ray, you know, the Reagan era. I mean, does that not count for anything? They didn't have a single woman working on the production. 
and Christy Marks, the creator, who even had a cameo in the film, pointed that out. So thank you guys. Looking forward to the rest of the show. Thanks, Jeff. Oh, it was nice to hear from Jeff. Uh, you can hear him this coming Sunday with me on the 411 Mania Ground and Pound radio show. We're going to be previewing an upcoming MMA event. Hang on. Uh, uh, I, don't know if this was, I don't know if this was clear. One, he's exactly right. Uh, J- Jason Bloom is responsible for producing both Jim the Hologram and the Ghost Dimension. He's having a fun week. But the other, <coughs> excuse me. But the other thing I, I thought was funny is Jeff, who is an adult male, came away with the exact same feeling that my do- my four-year-old daughter did, that all he got out of this movie was, why is there a heist in the middle of this? <laughs> and that, ladies and gentlemen, is why this movie has failed so miserably. All right, so back to your scavenger hunt for a theater playing this show. <sighs> well, before I get into the movie itself, let me I need to explain kind of how this thing came about to be distributed so poorly. Apparently Paramount, I believe this was Paramount. Yeah, it's Paramount Pictures. Apparently they are worried about their movies bombing in theaters. Now, this particular, and that's a fair worry. This was brought about apparently primarily because Hot Tub Time Machine 2 failed so miserably. Gee, I wonder why. <laughs> they should have been. They should have counted uh, their lucky stars that the first one succeeded at all and stopped pushing it. Yeah, but hey, you and I, you know, think logically. So <laughs> they have. De- so Paramount had decided that when it came to the Ghost Dimension, they were going to do something a little bit different. They wanted a faster turnover from being in the theaters to being available digitally. Now, their whole point here is we want you to have constant access to the movie. You know, we we don't want that, you know, three to four week gap when, you know, maybe it drops to a second run dollar theater or finally becomes available on demand or available for home purchase. We want that all to be truncated so we don't lose money so the movie doesn't, you know, drop out of popular consciousness. Now, this is not the dumbest, on the surface, this is not the dumbest no. idea in the world. We've actually seen this before. If you'll allow me, if you'll indulge me for just a moment, we have seen this before. It was Spaceball, instant cassettes. They're out in stores before the movie's even finished. Well, <laughs> just another thing that Mel Brooks has done better than the people currently in Hollywood. <laughs> Took you a minute for that to register, huh? Uh, anyway, uh, and again, <laughs> on the surface, this is not the dumbest idea ever. However, if you run a theater, be it a you know your own independent thing, if you run you know a local franchise, you are asso- all, almost all movie theaters are associated with a larger company that allow that you know does the negotiation buys rights, distributes movies, sets, you know, what goes where, again, so on and so forth. You're you're a franchise, basically, and you do what the home office tells you to do. But if you're not just local, but if you're, you know, even the main, if you're in the head of this, your movie, uh, this movie in particular, would only be exclusive to theaters for a couple of weeks before becoming available digitally. Now, at that point, there is no incentive 
for a paying customer to, you know, pay money to see that movie on a big screen. It's taking up space that could be spent to a movie that they must pay to see or want to see. And the again, the primary ones here that basically told them to take a hike were Regal Cinema, Cinemark, and Carmike. They just told them, no, we're not interested in your... And now, to compensate them for their loss of revenue, they were going to uh, cut them in on a percentage of the video-on-demand revenue streams. Again, again, not theoretically the dumbest idea, but all of these major distributors, major... (laughs) You know, entertainment ones have kind of said get bent we don't need your movie we will just make money on what we have we don't need it you need us more than we need you now a couple of theaters did ag- a couple of chains and whatnot did agree to this amc entertainment and cineplex uh both agreed that you know okay we'll we're here we'll go with this uh again now and Personally speaking, this just makes it a pain to find because almost everything immediately around me is associated with Cinemark. I have no problem with this. I've never had a problem with this until this movie. (laughs) And apparently the same type of thing is going to occur in a few weeks with Scout's Guide to the Zombie Apocalypse. Are you serious? They have done the same type of deal where... 17 days before they would be dropping this movie to being in less than 300 theaters, we're going to release it digitally and we will cut you in on, you know, a percentage. And a bunch of, again, a lot of these, you know, large retailers said, no thanks. As a direct result of this borderline ineptitude, Paranormal Activity 5 opened not in, you know, 2,000-plus screens nationwide, like your normal wide release does. Like Gem and the Holograms. Yeah, Gem and the Holograms had a normal release, 2,000-plus theaters. Because of this stupidity, this one opened in less than 1,500 theaters nationwide. I am. I imagine there are less than, there are probably less than ten theaters in my entire state showing this movie. This is that's just stupid. You have now as to the movie itself, I'll get to it in a minute. But you have an entry into a franchise that has a following, despite all of the times you have kicked them squarely in the balls. <laughs> you have it released at the right time of year. It's October. People go see horror movies in October more so than other times of year as a general rule. You have the novelty of 3D, which I will scream at you for in a minute. And your brilliant plan at the end of all this is hey, we're going to cut our screens in half. You made this movie a chore to locate. It was a chore to watch anyway, but you just made the whole thing a miserable experience. Shame on you. Can we um, 
can we talk about uh, narratively speaking what brought us here? Because I think that's an important element to the success or failure of this movie. Uh, you know, l- let me before we get too far down this narrative, because believe me, this is one of those winding trails that no one quite knows how you got on or where it ends, even the people writing it. All right. If you have not heard the Long Road to Ruin two-part episode, couple of episodes dealing specifically with this franchise, they're in the archives. It was two parts. Yeah, two parts. Myself, my first appearance on that show, and you know, God bless you guys for putting up with me. <laughs> Mark Radlitz and Sean Comer, the normal guys over there, and we talked about the franchise. I'd encourage you all to look that up and listen to it, because it explains over the course of those two episodes, much better than I can here in a limited time format, everything that goes wrong with this franchise. Now, the basic narrative, the first movie, again, when we talk at length about kind of the funny story of how paranormal activity even came to be, because that's interesting in and of itself. However, it just follows a couple of people being stalked and terrorized by a demonic force. It's utterly terrifying in the best way possible. But it was all it also became the single most profitable movie ever because it had a budget of $15,000. All right? It had no budget, made over $100 million. So again, profitability out the wazoo. The sequel deals with the uh somewhat extended family of the couple from the first one, specifically the sister of the girl. And it turns out that this particular demonic entity has been attached to them since they were kids. That's briefly hinted at. Uh, it shows up. It actually wants the this uh, kid because it's the first male born into this family line in however many generations. No one explains why that is, but that's where it is for the moment. Uh, It ends like they all do, with horrible death and a child being abducted. That's how every one of these movies ends. Not the first one. There was no child in the first one, but horrible death. And and since the second one takes place around the same time as the first one, it ends with a child being abducted. It's the same night. That's true. Everyone after the first one ends with horrible death, abducted children. The third one is a prequel that is supposed to show us the origin of this demonic issue when the two girls in question, uh, Katie and Christy, Kirsty, one of those two, I get those confused all the time. Christy, uh, uh, thank you. When they are kids and they are being stalked by a demonic entity that apparently their grandmother sicked on them because she's a witch. This movie ends with horrible death and the kids being taken up to be brides of said invisible demon. I seriously don't know what's wrong with the people writing this, that they want these horrible things to happen to children off screen, but the fourth one is it takes place a few years later, which makes sense, seeing as you know time has passed. It's the couple or the family that is now living next door to Katie. And they have actually and this the fourth one is written so deeply ineptly. All right, let me be very clear about that. Can we can we just stop for a second? Because I don't think 
I, I don't feel like you're, you're you're paying enough attention to to an issue that I've had with this series since the fourth one came out, and that is uh, if if you're going in order of the films and not in order of the events that happened because it's kind of out of order. This no, I, I'm actually going to go in now in narrative order. This demon is stalking the younger sister who she who has been been attached to her since childhood, since it murdered her stepdad and her mom. Um, the the husband of this woman transferred the demon to the sister in order to save his wife, which resulted in the sister becoming fully possessed by this demon and her going on a murdering spree, where she murders her boyfriend. Then she murders her brother-in-law. I believe she murders the sister and then kidnaps her nephew. Yeah. When we catch up to them in the fourth movie, there's no explanation as to why Katie is suddenly normal again. Because for a period of... Not only is she normal, she apparently has the wrong child. (laughs) This is one of those things that... I, I watched this movie and I went, wait. Because Katie the demonically possessed sister has in her possession at the end of two, her nephew who being the first male in that family is now the property of the demon. It's something stupid like that. That is never explained. When we get to the fourth movie, she has a different child and this nephew has been adopted by the family that she is now living next to. I, I, and been there for a while. Like, Katie's the new weird neighbor. And, so, this, again, this makes no sense. How did she lose the child she wanted in the first place? Can, can we stop for a second? The last time we see Katie, she was wearing uh, short shorts that you would go to sleep in and a tank top full of blood. And, yeah. oh, by the way, she's possessed by a demon, so she's got that, like, crooked, crazy walk going on. You know, like, if you ever... ever and the seen, eyes are black. Oh, and her eyes are black. So... Let's let let let's let let's examine this for just a moment. There's a woman walking around in her skivvies with blood all over her, doing the crip walk with black eyes and a baby in her hand. And she's not walking through a cornfield. She is not walking through empty streets. She this isn't the zombie apocalypse. She's walking through a well lit suburban neighborhood with rich people houses. No, I'm in know San Diego if memory serves. I know white folks don't pay attention to much, but I'm fairly certain someone saw this shit. And the thing of it is, is that we don't pick up paranormal activity for uh, a week later, a day later. It's several years later. Did did she try to get, did she get on a plane and she leave the fucking kid at the airport? I mean, like I said, at what point did, did she revert back to being normal Katie, normal enough that no one would notice that, She's fucking possessed by a demon. And is this now a new power? She's normal enough to apparently get a mortgage from a bank. (laughs) Hold down a job. I mean, does she work in the Bank of America? Franchise are never outlined. Uh, that's I mean, maybe that's what happened. Is she took the she took the kid into Bank of America and was like, I can't give you a loan, madam. First of all, your eyes are black. Second of all, you appear to be drooling and you have a demon face. And, you know, and not to mention the fact that you didn't fill out the paperwork correctly. You just felt raw, raw, like a dungeon dragon. 
uh, on it, so we, we can't help you. Meanwhile, fucking poor Hunter, in the middle of this, runs out of the thing, and, and she can't catch up to him. That's what I'm imagining happened. And how she got the loan, by the way, is she did the demon yell, and he went flying back, and someone walked over and was like, oh, Jesus, if it was going to be that kind of a potty, and then wrote her alone. It had to be something like that. No, it's never discussed. It's never touched on. Now, that brings us to Paranormal Activity 5, the ghost dimension. Oh, really... It, Really incidentally. Wait a minute. Um, no, it doesn't. Well, hold on, hang on. You, you haven't gotten to the end of Paranormal Activity 4. So this weirdo fucking demon kid that she's adopted um, is is doing his best to to get Hunter ready to be possessed by Toby, which I guess is the ultimate goal is the, the firstborn male. You know, you'd think that would, make, that would have made sense, but apparently Ghost Dimension decided, no, we have another goal. No, 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 no. I know, I know. That's why, that's why I needed to bring this up. So the whole plot of Paranormal Activity 4 is that Hunter, who is now Wyatt, needs to be uh, changed in such a way so that he can be prepared to be the vessel for Toby uh, when Toby uh, takes corporal form and enters, uh, enters you know, our realm, essentially. Um, and so at the end of the movie, when the sister's trying to save him and figure out what the fuck's going on, she's like molested by a coven of, she's first, she's knocked the fuck out by Katie and who comes running at her from down the hallway. Um, and then she's molested by a coven of witches. Take it away, Robert. Uh, all right. Paranormal activity. I really need to say this as far as the franchise goes, there was a, loosely related movie called Paranormal Activity The Marked Ones uh, that has almost no tie to the Katie saga at all. That is actually much better than movies three, four, or five. So if you like these movies, if you like the first two, The Marked Ones is not bad. I just need the disclaimer there. Paranormal Activity 5, The Ghost Dimension picks up with our family and their daughter, who is going to be the target of this demon, still Toby, by the way, guy gets around. Uh, it is over the Christmas season because apparently, why not? That's never brought up. Just, hey, we want to set this at Christmas. This family that we now have has moved into the house that Katie and Christy grew up in. So for those of you who have followed along. This is the same house featured in Paranormal Activity 3. It's been rebuilt, remodeled. Apparently it burned down. Uh, again, new building, but it's the same location. And our family now lives there. Kind of like the Poltergeist movie where they built the house over an Indian burial ground. Eh, kind of. Now, because we need an excuse to look back at better movies... The father in this instance finds in a box old VHS tapes that are large parts of Paranormal Activity 3. I kid you not. We actually rewatch sequences from another movie that anyone who follows the franchise would have seen. We also get uh, other, so other videos of these the two little girls, Katie and Christy, being prepared to receive Toby as a vessel. I don't know. There's a weird-looking dude with you know, a greasy ponytail who is supposed to be preparing them and teaching them to use their powers. It's deeply stupid. 
But apparently Christy can see through Toby's eyes. And since Toby is in this house in the future, we get this weird parallel timeline. Because what this franchise really needed was time travel. Let me tell you. (laughs) There are sequences where... Uh, the father in question and his brother who has just moved in with them after getting bumped, it's only for... This whole thing takes place over a ludicrously truncated time schedule. The others at least spread it out over weeks and months. This is all ha- this all happens within like four days. It's just stupid. There are times when they are re-watching, you know, little Christy trying to see through Toby's eyes and she's describing the room they're in and at one point one of them sneezes and Katie from 20 years ago says, bless you. It's, it's actually, it's kind of, it should be an eerie moment. It really should be. And it, it falls flat. Uh, they, st- you get the pretty typical paranormal activity haunting sequences, which in this inst- which in this case are rushed and stupid and shot poorly we also fought, apparently the camera that they had in 1988, uh, which they find, is capable of seeing spirits. That's right. We have a magic camera. <laughs> so they use this camera to, you know, as part of their static recordings. And oh, static recordings are so bad in this one. But it is, this camera is able to visually pick up Toby. Now, he is not seen definitively. What you get is this awful CGI'd black oily blob. It looks vaguely humanoid in shape, but it looks awful. You can, again, the whole thing is done digitally. It looks very digital, the whole uh, the 3D thing is generally meant to as used as a joke to you know have him come out of the screen at you done very poorly. Uh, apparently, not only did these people move into this house, but their daughter was born on the same day as Hunter. Why this is important is never explained. They actually name the coven of witches in this particular one. They call them the midwives. It is not explained how the husband and father comes into this information, apart from vague notions of the internet. (laughs) I I wish I was making this up. They contact a priest, which is something that for some reason no one in any of the previous four movies did. Uh, This does not end well for the priest. Uh, the little girl at one point actually ra- draws a bunch of weird-looking symbols in an archway above her bed that then becomes a portal to that same room in 1988. Again, I wish I was making this up. <laughs> During our climactic sequence, the priest comes and tries to destroy Toby. Again, this does not work because... If it did, you know, things might actually have made sense. Uh, They think they get him. They don't. One of the family members vomits boiling blood onto another. They both die. Uh, The father, I kid you not, is impaled on one of Toby's oily 
Cthulhu tentacles as he's trying to run after their daughter who is running towards the portal in her bedroom. And it looks just as bad as you might imagine because 3D and computer imagery. The mother chasing her daughter, which you, you do, I get that, goes through this bizarre portal into the solid wall, comes out in 1988, where they also meet demonically possessed Katie and Christie as children. Again, I kid you not. Who warn her that she's too late, Toby has now entered the world. She finds her daughter who says, it's okay, mommy, they just wanted a drop of my blood. We then get to see the back of Toby's calves, and he looks like a normal human, at least from the knees down. He proceeds to snap the mother's neck. The little girl is nonplussed by all of this because Toby is her friend and has been for a few years, apparently. Never mind that, you know, you're, I don't care how long you've known someone. If they snap your mother's neck in front of you, your response to seeing them won't be, Hi, Toby. You then take his hand and walk nonchalantly off camera with him to, I presume, be married, because why not? <laughs> And the movie cuts out there. All okay. right. So before this goes any further, so I have been reading on this, reading up on this movie since we did Long Road to Ruin, the paranormal activity movies. I've been keeping tabs on, on what became the ghost dimension. And the early write-ups on it were that they were bringing back Katie Featherstone and that this was going to answer all the questions from the previous movies. Who are the midwives? What's going on? This was going to continue Katie's story and bring it to some sort of resolution and we were going to get answers. And well, that would have been nice. And somewhere along the line, that seemed to have, to have evolved into or devolved into fuck answers. We're gonna focus. We're, we're we're gonna focus mainly on a brand new story, but at least this time you're gonna to get to see the hauntings. And before I, I get your impression of this movie, let me just say, even as somebody who's not a huge fan of horror movies and doesn't like being frightened, I really enjoyed the first Paranormal Activity because it tapped into something that is viscerally real, and that is things that go bump in the night. And without getting into some some personal stuff. Let me just say that when you're in a house by yourself, the house, your house makes noise. Now, some of that, you know, house is settling, um, you know, so you hear a creakiness. Depending on how old your house is, it, it's things with pipes. You know, if you're here in Florida, your air conditioning will suddenly go on and it sounds like, you know, the fucking tank rolling through your house. Um, if you have kids... You've probably you've probably seen this on Facebook or or Twitter or something. Where, you know the twenty creepy sh- things that kids do. Well, my daughter's done them. You know, has definitely woken up in the middle of the night and has sat staring at my wife <laughs> while she sleeps. And I've woken up like, what the fuck are you doing? So when you see when you see a movie like Paranormal Activity, it takes all of those sort of visceral moments of a person's life and assigns them to an actual demon haunting somebody. And that's what made it creepy as fuck. The fact that, and I want to make sure I say this, because even something like Jaws, which also takes a visceral feel, that you might be eaten in the water while swimming, at least you can punch a shark in the nose and maybe fuck get away. You know, you're probably not going to win a fight with a killer whale, but at least you have a shot. 
um, you know, if there's a monster chasing you through the woods, at least if it's, you know, as, as we all learned from Predator, if it bleeds, we can kill it. God bless the Arnie problem, for that line. The problem with, you know, with a, not a problem, but the thing about a movie like Paranormal Activity is you can't see the threat. So, when, you know, when you've got a It doesn't who, bleed. Consequently, you can't kill it. You know, it's slowly building up power as the movie moves on. And so first it's a door shutting and then it's a keys falling off the thing and then it's a this and that. Suddenly it's powerful enough to drag you out of bed down a fucking hallway. That's frightening. Because how are you supposed to defend yourself? How are you supposed to fight this thing? Now, five movies later, they took all of that and said, mm, fuck it. <laughs> okay? All those things that make it scary, we're just going to say fuck it to all of it. And we're just going to make a, a monster movie. And it won't make any sense, by the way. But that's all this movie is. It's just—it's it, not paranormal activity, as I understood the franchise. It's a monster movie, right or wrong. You're more right than you are wrong. Um, and, and again, we talked about this at length when we talked about the first one. That it does such a great job of building tension, especially during the night, and it just, and gradually increasing—you know—the being's power, what it's able to do. Yeah, things that not only that it can do, but how it does them. You know, all this stuff is slowly building to a crescendo. Right. And the second one does it also very well. My big gripe with, uh, I thought the third one had moments. My, one of my bigger gripes with the fourth one was they for they completely left that alone. Uh, to the point where, and I will say this about four, there are I think two decent scares in that whole movie. But. One of the gripes I had with that one is it starts doing things of more power early. So that completely negates, you know, a chair moving on its own being scary. Because, no, wait, it can actually, like, you know, yank the chandelier down and proceed to beat you to death with it. So why do I care if it moves a chair? I'm right. happy if it's just moving chairs. And they even experimented with kind of showing you Toby with doing the, you know, like the first time they do it with the with the Xbox Connect, I think it's a cool image. I like the idea that they didn't show you too much of the demon, so you can get away with it. But it was like, but once again, it was just like, what if we learn about the last couple of movies that we can expound on? Um, we start showing more of the demon using technology. Run with it. <laughs> what? Yeah. Um. Again, Toby. Now again, he does not have form in this one in the same way that he does by the end of it. it he's a vi he's a vague kind of shape. I mean, really, if you imagine the black mist from Lost and turn it into a semi-humanoid shape, you've got about the size of it. It's I, not specific. I, I, thought it was, I thought it was Thundar the Barbarian. It's not. There was a cartoon around the same time as Thundar the Barbarian where like the sidekick was this yellow blob that was running around with eyes. That's kind of what it reminded me of. Yeah, that's not too far off either. It's And it just... It's sad because so much of what is supposed to make this effective is that your mind does the scaring for you. We don't need to see Toby. There's actually one somewhat interesting sequence towards the end of it when they're trying to destroy him and a sheet falls on him. Which, uh, again... I give credit to that one being at least a little bit interesting because Toby has had physical form in that sense and that, you know, things react to him. So you drop a sheet on him and, oh, wait, there's, you know, vaguely humanoid shape. 
I was okay with that. It also let him, you know, menace people in a slightly different way. It just becomes moot because you're filming it with this magic camera that sees him as, you know, black, oily glob. And it actually robs what could have been a really scary sequence because, hey, we've already seen it. Now, I do have to say, now, I really got to get this off my chest. Because I like the first two specifically in this franchise so much. Uh, the first one is one of the few, again, one of the legitimately terrifying movies I've ever seen. And somehow this small franchise that started on a $15,000 budget, independent in the truest sense of the word, done with, again, all of these have small budgets. They are designed to look and feel small, guerrilla, underground, you know, however you want to phrase that, because they're all found footage. So they carry with themselves a, a kind of, you know, both a visual aesthetic and a spirit to them of small-budget guerrilla filmmaking. Somehow, this has become the prototypical Hollywood franchise hogwash. And if you don't believe me, allow me to take you through what this movie has done. We had first entry, which theoretically stands alone, and I would be much happier if it were just a standalone movie. However, <laughs> we have a movie. The studio executives decide, hey, that made gobs of money. Make more. Well, all right. So our sequel, which... Monkeys with, retcons around with, and sets up future installments in the franchise while running at roughly the same time as the first one chronologically, within the story narrative. This is done, again, by studio executives who want to franchise something. You do a second one close to the first and make sure you explain away, other, you know, explain away everything that could have been a tied-up storyline and ask questions. Then, we move on to the prequel. Then, the attempted offshoot with 4, that, again, has very little to do with all of the people associated with the first ones. And, hey, look, new characters. Now, with 5, actually, we've tried two full-blown spin-offs with Paranormal Activity, Tokyo Night, and Paranormal Activity, The Marked Ones. Because, hey, we have a strong franchise, let's spin it off. That always works. Now, we simultaneously have Paranormal Activity 3D with time travel. There are only two places left to go, folks. Paranormal <laughs> Activity 6 will feature, I would bet my bottom dollar, not specifically this actor, however, this sequence, the first time the Witch Coven attempts to attack the family in question this time, one of them is shot in the head with a shotgun. We, pull, <laughs> we pan away to a man standing partially in silhouette in the doorframe, probably smoking, 
whose debut line is something to the effect of not this time, bitch. And we now have our revenge entry into the franchise. (laughs) Followed by pick one of the kids who's been abducted and escaped. Joins the astronaut program and goes to the International Space Station for Paranormal Activity 7 in space. Then we reboot the whole thing. Bothers me how how much of that I I suspect is probably going probably true. So they're saying that this is it. This is the last one. We're, we're they are now. lying through their teeth. <laughs> Look, they answered no questions. They gave Toby physical form at the end of this thing. Okay. By the way, I was thinking of the Herculoids. Okay. Do, do you remember the Herculoids? Did not see it. It's a Hanna Barbera cartoon from the '80s. Well, then it's probably awful. <laughs> All right. Go on. Uh, and and again, I am shocked that we took that a film franchise that theoretically feels this you know small budget and independent can be so obviously placed on the rise and fall of every Hollywood franchise ever. But here we are. Now I just want to talk about the Herculoids. <laughs> Again, we can all look forward to paranormal activity in space because the International Space Station is monitored. Well, when we originally did this, I, if you'll remember, I, I pitched how, uh, paranormal activity in a jail or prison. Which I would, which would have actually been a bit more interesting. I would have, yeah, I would have liked to have seen a thing where, um, you know, you have certain inmates who are being haunted, and you know, and and not because they're totally awful people, just because, yeah, you know, they're used to inmates being full of shit. Um, you know, like the police, the, the deputies or the correctional officers don't do anything about it. You know, and it takes so it you takes so long. So I, much well, to I mean, happen. you work in a you work in a jail, so if an if an inmate is complaining to you that somebody's ringing on my bars and monkeying with my mattress. What are you going to do? Nothing. Here we go. Set up a, set up a, uh, set up an appointment with a psychiatrist and hope the person will take his meds. Yeah. So it makes a great, it's a great setup for, you know, some poor bastard who's actually being haunted by, you know, evil demon. Right. You know, you'd see them like receive, you know, they, they know clearly they're being, they're being haunted. They've now felt the presence. They physically felt this thing. Do you know? Try to do something to them, and they start screaming it. You know, from their isolation cell. And the, you know, and they come in. And the nurses hold them down. You know, they're given an e- the inmate's given an ETO, and now he can't even move because he's so drugged up. Meanwhile, you know, if the things are about to get markedly worse, I mean, that that's a great te- that's great tension in the scene. But we're not here to discuss that. Oh, no, why would we discuss what would what would have made this franchise exponentially better? So, one of the reasons why I feel like this movie fails on on its own merits is that it doesn't really answer any questions. We still don't know what Toby's endgame was because it's now switched several times. We still um, don't know what happens to Katie. We don't know who these children are or why they're being targeted. Right. We have we no idea know where why 1988 seems to be as important to this franchise as November 5th, 1955 was to Back to the Future. <laughs> you know, or Judgment Day is for the Terminator franchise. 
There always has to be a judgment day. Um, yeah, I mean, I was reading someone's review on it, and they, and they were trying to explain away some of the non-explained details, and that basically, you know, Toby um, is using the midwives' coven to uh, to create an army of bodies for him to possess. So he can't, he's not just possessing one corporal soul. He's possessing... He's she's possessing an army full of these people, and they are going to march across the earth, setting you know setting things ablaze, and uh, you know and raising the devil. I guess I don't know. Well, it, it, <laughs> that would at least make a modicum of sense. But then, no, Toby wants to be a real boy. <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing. Like, let me ask you a question. Do you think this last? this last movie should have been a found footage movie or at least stayed a found footage movie. Like I, I feel like if they really wanted to do this right, they should have, you know, there should have been some, some elements of found footage in there, some elements of, of video camera shooting uh, film, but it should have then transitioned into the present and your view of things. It's what's, it's what's happening. And they should have showed, you know, that the last thing should have been, you know, should have been an actual physical Toby leading an army of, like, possessed children, I guess, or some shit, you know, and, and, and as they begin to torch the world around them and, you know, fade to black. I think that would have made, made, at least that would have tied things up. You know, you could have at least showed Katie and showed Hunter and everyone's got black eyes and torches and Toby's just sort of, and, you know, and now we march. You know, and the and the and the and the, the midwives are there, and that's the end of it. And you couldn't really show that as you know totally as fun because who the fuck's holding the camera at that point? So, um, but instead of just running around murdering everybody in the film, like why not get to the get to where this was all been? You know, the, the, I don't feel like there's any resolution. There is. This, this just seems to be another chapter in the life of Toby and his children, and that's it. And it's just more killing, and it's like they can't get out of the rut that they're in, where it's like, let, let's have a house, let's haunt the house, let's murder everybody in the house, and then keep adding layers of exposition on it that don't ever get resolved. Unfor- uh, this is, I believe, the fault of studio executives who have no creative ability whatsoever and for some reason think they do. <laughs> I, I people have latched onto the concept that the core of what makes a paranormal activity movie a paranormal activity movie is found footage. This is a fundamental misconception. What makes these movies successful has very little to do with found footage as a filmmaking style. I, this movie, at the very least, should have transitioned away from that to a more traditional narrative. Right. Now, if you, uh, and here's how you do it. I'll, I'll make this easy for everybody. You film the family being haunted normally. Now, no found footage BS. Traditional movie structure. However, they use cameras in a similar way to how we see them. Uh, specifically, you know, weird stuff starts happening, you set up to record it, fine. We can watch them watching the, st- watching the you know, aftermath. Right. I mean, imagine how much better 
this particular sequence is. Again, we are watching as, you know, again, traditional movie narrative, so we can't see Toby. We see, you know, the effects of Toby, little girl being weird, uh, you know, the nanny or you know, random other person whose presence was never really explained, uh, tries to put the little girl back to bed. Toby monkeys with her, but he doesn't, you know, does not yet have enough power. So all we see is this girl being, you know, shoved around. Something is, you know, screwing with her and scaring her. The next morning, as they explain this to the, you know, father who set up the cameras. So he goes and looks at the film, and then we get a glimpse of, you know, evil, black, malevolent spirit Toby. Right. Instead of the way it was actually done, which was just insipid and the antithesis of tension because you're showing us stuff. Okay. The reason why the first uh, Paranormal Activity movie works is because you have the one camera sort of set up in the bedroom where most of the action takes place. There isn't a chase through the house. The monster doesn't, you know... <coughs> sorry, the monster isn't chasing them through the house with, with a machete or anything like that. Uh, you actually don't see any other part of the house during that one static recording. You know, it just... You, Katie gets dragged off. Mika runs after her. Mika gets thrown at the camera. She sniffs his, you know, body like a dog. We're out, and it's believable because it's that one shot. You know, camera was set up there. Things happened in front of it. You don't see anything else that isn't happening in front of the camera. I watched the. I haven't watched the whole movie, but I watched the Everything Wrong with Cloverfield, and this to me is the fundamental failure of every. Uh, found footage movie. There comes a point where no rational person is going to hold that camera anymore. If yeah. you and I right now were doing a video uh, review and not a not a podcast, and I had my camera on, and my worst fear is realized someone who I've interacted with in the jail has found my home and has kicked open my door and is running at me. I'm not turning the camera on, okay. <laughs> Or, or leaving the camera and be like, you know, pointing it at the door as fucking felons come running into my house, or anything else like that. If aliens show up in my lawn, you know, taking the Cloverfield uh, example, and Cloverfield's you Cloverfield's know, not aliens. What were they? Cloverfield's just a monster movie. I thought those. I thought the aliens. I thought the monsters were aliens, though. There's one monster, and it's not confirmed where it comes from. Okay, from what I gathered, it looked like they were like little bug, little bug creatures. Oh, there were. There were other things that apparently were around it. But again, the whole alien thing is never confirmed. It's uh, again Cloverfield. For as much as I like aspects of Cloverfield, there's a couple of pretty glaring narrative issues. So alien bugs land on my front lawn, like I don't know any fucking movie. Okay. All right. And they come crashing into my house, and I, you know, and I'm I'm not sitting there with my cell phone trying to get video of it while it's happening. I'm trying to live. So, <laughs> so I'm just thinking about like how this movie ends. Why would the mother who's got the kid's hand still have a camera on? Like you just, like, I, I, we we were out there in the yard yesterday, and you know, we my, my daughter who all she wanted to do was do uh, water balloons, right? So. <laughs> Uh, we came home and we, you know, we filled the water balloons and we let her play with them. And you know, her and her brother ran around the front yard and just had the time of their life. No, we didn't do. We didn't film it. <laughs> okay, all the all the cell phones were in the house along with the video camera. We could have if we really wanted to 
didn't feel like it. Didn't feel it was necessary. For one of the kids to have a nice time enjoying themselves, we were enjoying the nice Florida weather in our front yard, our nice quiet neighborhood. Didn't feel the need to record any of this shit. And that's kind of how real life people are. So but that's why like, I don't find these movies to be particularly believable. Like I said, I bought it with the first Paranormal Activity. The second one's a lot of security footage. All right, I'm Which so with it? you. Yeah, it's a logical progression of if you need to film more than one place at the same time, okay, security cameras. Hey, we found a way around this potential problem. Good job, everybody. And the security cameras were already there. They weren't set up to catch, you know, ghost sightings. But by the no, time their house the... gets broken into by the evil spirit, but the point is, they burglary, their response is, we need a better security system. And my mom reacted the same way. My wife, uh, though we weren't broken into, but my wife has reacted the same way. Where you know suddenly, you know, there's a feel, there's a need to feel secure in your own home. Get a security system. It actually, doesn't make things any better, but you know it makes people feel better. But actually, my, my, when my parents' house was broken into in New York, my mom couldn't sleep until we had an alarm system and cameras and shit put up. So you know, it makes people feel better. Kind of like religion. In any case. In real life, though, like I said, in the third one, you're not filming this many aspects of your life. Like, there's one thing in the Everything Wrong with Paranormal Activity 3 where they're, you know, where they're about to uh, have sex and they're filming it, and, okay, they're making a sex tape. Yuck. But, you know, people do, people do that. And then there's a disturbance, and it stops everything cold. Turn the fucking camera off. That's what normal people would do. That's why well, I in that sequence, the camera was set on a tripod just to record an earthquake starts and they just get out of the room. Mm-hmm. I'm less forgiving of the final sequence where he's being chased by evil spirits and a huge coven of witches, and his response is still, have camera, let's have the camera look outside and see the witches closing in. Oh, crap, lock the door. No, 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 no. One time. One time I have seen a movie that has found footage where I buy the guys holding the camera during the, you know, when everything goes to hell at the end of the movie. Once. Right. That's a movie called uh, The Sacrament, done, at least produced by Eli Roth. And it makes sense because the people filming this are, you know, associated with Vice, that, you know, media group. So, sure, they're professional cameramen paid to record everything. You have now found a way for it to make sense. Good job. Everyone else who's tried this has failed on almost every level because there is no reason for them to still be filming. As does this movie, getting back to the central topic at hand. I mean, you saw it, but I'm going to tell you just based on somebody who's only read about read the um, plot synopsis and has read some successive articles that have been written about the movie. This movie fails on almost every level. It does not yeah. tie anything up. It does not advance in any way the narrative of of this world. Uh, from what <clears throat> from what you said, it looks like shit, and it's not in any way believable to the point where it taps into those visceral feelings that I spoke about from the first. Movie. That's my biggest gripe with when I was watching this movie. Is congratulations, you're not actually scary. <laughs> Did, has this wandered into Freddy not scary territory? No, not quite that bad. Freddy at least had violence on his side. And some of the later Freddy movies, the entire tone is such that he 
despite making jokes and not being, you know, as scary as he is in other movies, is still very much a figure of menace within movies that are not designed to be scary. They are simply designed to be fun slasher movies. That's not how you're supposed to use Freddy. However, it at least makes sense within its own... It at least makes sense tonally. It makes sense that, look, if we're going to have all this goofy stuff, Freddy's going to be goofy. Fine. You're doing it wrong, but fine. (laughs) This is like wisecracking Freddy with sunglasses shows up and the people react with legitimate terror. That's how they're trying to sell this. Toby has stopped being scary because right. you are ru- you have rushed everything about him that is supposed to build his power and build your personal sense of dread because you think it's more important to utilize bad CGI or, you know, theoretically scare the audience with crappy jump scares. Good job, morons. It's again these mo- if you've seen any of these movies they all do the same thing. They just execute it worse and worse as time goes on. And it's just deeply frustrating because it shouldn't be that hard. It should not be that difficult to scare people with something that is invisible, that goes bump in the night, that grows, that feeds on your fear become stronger as you get more and more scared of it, menaces your children, and eventually is going to gain enough power to interact with you physically and kill you. This is a tremendously terrifying line of thought and narrative line. And somehow, we completely managed to screw it up over the last, you know, movies three, four, and five have all managed to do this badly. Because you rush the narrative. You rush things. You don't let tension actually build. You don't give us reasons to care about your characters. No one is fleshed out. All right. They're all just cannon fodder. We have about 13 minutes or so left before we're going to go to dead air. Um... You know, into recording here. Let me ask you a question. And normally this is sort of my thing, so if you want to pitch it back to me, I'll make something. But if the studio comes to you and says, okay, Robert Winfrey, we've got sort of a winding, crazy narrative here with these first four movies and then this Latino offshoot called The Marked Ones. Um, do, a, do another paranormal activity movie, but end this story. Tie up all loose ends, explain things away, Obviously, you wouldn't do the found footage style. You would do it, you know, contemporary, uh, normal style shooting. But besides the the craft of it, how would you have tied this up? What would you have said to sort of explain away the Katie Hunter, Wyatt phenomenon? You know, Toby. Like, what would have, what would have to you would have been a satisfying endgame? Tell you what. I will actually say, if you're going to put a gun to my head and make me do this found footage style, I think I can still make it work. Go on. There's a... Again, there are a few bits in this movie where that are recorded training videos of Christy and Katie learning how to use supernatural powers. 
I think you stick primarily with that as kind of your narrative base for fleshing out all of the characters, for fleshing mm-hmm. out the motivations. You know, what, now that we have this, you know, cult leader talking with girls who he is training, we have a perfect setup to actually explain what Toby wants, why they're important, and what they have to do to fin- to realize their goals of world decimation or what have you. So you'd keep with the same basic plot with a new family, but you'd use the scenes involving the 1988 footage to actually give exposition. Yes, that's what it should be used for. It exposes things. Instead of another family and another haunting, because that's been done, I think what you do to advance the narrative of this story is much more... uh, I think you do kind of what they did with the first season of uh, True Detective where our contemporary stuff is at the beginning uh, police interviews. Because let's assume random family has found this footage of girls in a cult being brainwashed and abused and trained. They take it to the authorities. We use, we follow the investigating officers as they try to figure out what the hell is going on. You can okay. do this with a bunch of different a bunch of different found footage techniques. Again, you have static recorded interviews. You can have footage from police precincts. You could even have footage from, you know, again, the cult's compound, assuming they're that well established. And you intersperse this with, again, flashbacks that are the training footage. And now you can actually talk about what's going on, this group, how long they've been around, what they actually want. You have, you know, skeptical police officers who don't buy into the, you know, haunting crap, but, you know, cults bad. Cults with small children and pervy-looking older gentlemen, very bad. And because they're attempting to dismantle this organization, Toby eventually decides he's going to go after them. Okay, that makes sense. Where do you have, where does does adult Katie and... At this point, you know, either young, you know, elementary school age hunter or junior high age hunter, hunter fit into all this into your plot. I would have them be members of this cult, and again, like all cult members, you know, they deny it, but you introduce them because they are interviewed, actually, you know, voluntarily I, here, or not here, voluntarily. Here's how I would have done it: I would have actually had Katie in prison, like I'd have her like in a psychiatric prison. But I would say after the events of the fourth one, the fucking police caught up with her because she's responsible now for the, for the death of a dead girl. They, they, they connect her to Mika and to the rest of the family's death. And so the kid goes into, the kid goes into, into a foster family, another one, um, and she goes to prison. And so you can actually intersperse tape sessions with her as well. Yeah, I, I mean, again... and. Guys, and the, and the, Hollywood, <laughs> this is two guys on a podcast spitballing. We've already done better. Here's the thing. Here's how I would do it. Um, taking everything that you just said, because I really like your idea, but to keep with the characters that have already been established, I would have Hunter, um, the family that's currently experiencing hauntings, 
um, that kind of gets this whole ball rolling is the is the is Hunter's new adopted family, and Aunt Katie is in a psychiatric prison, and when the family uh, finds the footage of young Katie and Christy and they turn it into the police, that's and the police go, well, this is the one that we've already got in prison, you know. Um, let let's start to review this and let, let let's see where this takes us and you know, kind of then I kind of go with your thing. Not only is the family being haunted, but now the cops are being you know fucked with as well. And then you can have them like try and like track down the you know the track down these other women, you know, women that were connected to the grandmother, you know that that sort of thing. Yeah, there's plenty of ways you can take it, and at the end of it, if you need, and here's where I would break with found footage narrative because. Again, it makes no sense for the climax of most of these movies to have found footage. Mm-hmm. The climax is the family is finally being attacked by Toby, who is strong enough to you know, impose his will. We follow the officers as they respond to the 911 call. We find, and they now know that Toby's goal is to somehow take physical form because he's only so powerful as a demon and he wants to you know, again, insert whatever goal you have for Toby here, however you want that to be. And I'll say that can be, you know, you can change. He wants an army of possessed children. Fine. Instead of responding just to that family, the whole city starts going to hell. Right. right. There's all different ways you can do that. That's the point when you break with found footage narrative, unless you want to intersperse a little bit of this with something like a body cam from a uniformed officer which wouldn't be the worst idea in the world. But you now have, again, traditional narrative, traditional structure. They go, they try to help the family, but boy, howdy, are they too late. And right. the army of demonic children led by physical Toby is about to unleash hell on Earth. Yeah, and just end it with the, with, with the town, the, you know, the police station. Everything's on fire. You know, and, this, and, you, know, and, and you can, you know, that, the horror movies are really good for that, where things are sort of left vague. You know, but I think the major plot points would have been tied up. The major questions from previous movies would have been pretty much settled. And it's just, okay, the world caught fire, and we don't know what happened after that. That's that's freaky. That's scary. But, you know, that 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 gives you at least this you know feeling of dread. You know, for what's going to happen. But it, they can just let it linger there and, and be done with it. So there you have it, Paramount. <laughs> Once again, two guys you with a podcast, nothing better to do with their time. Just gave you. A much better movie. Feel free to use it. <laughs> uh, all right. Um, I think uh, I think we've said all that needs to be said here. Unless you unless you've got any more. I mean, with the performances at uh, all decent. And you said the, you said yeah, the whole thing. No. Comes off uh, look, the one of the things that made the first couple of movies so successful was you had real you had characters that were written as real people. Right. Deeply flawed. I mean, again, Mika from the first one is kind of a dick. But he's reacting very much the way a person would react, and you can sympathize with him. He's falling back on what he knows, and that's being a dick. You still don't want him to die. Katie is a little bit shrill and a tad hysterical, Understandable, given the extenuating circumstances, mind you. She also, goes, standing, she also has standing bitch face. 
Yes. Which and doesn't very sympathetic. No, but that all contributes to them being, you know, real people. Real characters. The sequel, too, did very much the same thing. Katie's sister is an exponentially more believable and appealing character than she is. There's a kid, there's a daughter. They're all... Again, they they feel like real people. Now, these movies feel like they are putting cannon fodder into them. <laughs> so, where on the Reggie the Reckless meter did they, uh, did they rank? None of them were that bad. Uh, none of the people in this movie were so grating that I wanted them dead. I mean, uh, the brother who's got a terrible mustache, who is there because he's been dumped on the holidays by his girlfriend and is just kind of there with his brother and his family just, you know, getting his stuff back together. I, he's a little bit annoying in that when he's recording, he does kind of the mystery science theater thing where his commentary is nothing but jokes. <laughs> and initially that's actually okay. Like, oh, what was that noise? Oh, let's go. Ch- uh, you think it might have been the ice maker and the freezer kicking on there? Maybe Toby just really wanted a drink. I mean, it's stuff like that. And it should be grating. It's not as grating as it could have been because all that happens very early in the movie. So someone who is just, you know, not believing in the supernatural would make jokes like that at someone who is jumping at, you know, every sound. Right. But none of them reached, you know, yeah, Reggie the Reckless is kind of the gold star for people you really want to see die. And none of, nobody in this hit that. They're all just forgettable. I couldn't tell you any of the names of any of them, anything about them. Uh, it's They're just there to die at the end of the movie. It's, and it, it's a failure of the writing. They didn't craft any believable or relatable characters. All right. Uh, the last thing I want to say about this movie, despite opening on, you know, 1,500 screens at most, had only a $10 million budget, has already made $27 million. Yeah, it's already financially successful. It's not critically successful, unfortunately, but... Um, well, I don't think it'll make much more than this, because not only are horror movies generally very front-heavy, but this this one's not good. But they will not chalk this up as a financial win and give us another one that ultimately still leads to me. What really bugs me about this... My, I'm going with hope here. They've said this is the last one. They're done. They're, they're moving on to something else. They're lying through their... (laughs) The sad thing about this overall franchise is if you wanted to do a bunch of, of, you know, you could do a bunch of just non-related horror movies about, you know, demonic entities attacking people. You don't need recurring characters. You don't need this convoluted narrative. All you need is an appropriate setup and to scare the crap out of people. And you can do that without, you know, grossly messing with your narrative. 
If you want to make them all found footage, fine. There are ways you can make that believable and interesting, and we've talked about quite a few of them here. And just monkey with it that way, but don't try to bog yourself down in franchise overarching narrative that you can't do properly. Yeah, they really should have, after the second one, just let that family be. Um, yeah, maybe reference it like, oh, years ago, some, you know, some... Look, the next family that gets haunted looks up on the internet stuff like this. Look what happened right. to this family. Well, yeah. that sucks. I hope that doesn't happen to us. They found what appeared to be a possessed woman wandering the streets with a baby. You know, the baby went into foster care. Um, and the woman, you know, the, the woman Committed was... Committed suicide in custody three weeks later. Yeah, yeah, something like that. Was shot on site when she ran at the police would have been believable. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, look, there's actually a really weird case here, and I have to bring this up. For those of you who know that the Asylum uh, group that does Mockbusters, they did, after Paranormal Activity was successful, a Mockbuster uh, called Paranormal Entity. Despite that group's best efforts to just, you know, make stupid mockbusters. Paranormal Entity is actually a better Paranormal Activity movie than 3, 4, or 5. So if you want another movie that is within the same spirit of, you know, the good entries into this franchise, look that up. You'll be better off than watching this. I think we can safely say we're not going to recommend either film. I I can't in good conscience tell anyone to watch this movie. If you like horror movies, go see Crimson Peak. That's <laughs> out right now and is a much better movie. As for Gem and the Holograms, um, I'm sure if you wait five minutes, another movie will come along that says girls are great and they should believe in themselves and will be much better than Gem and the Holograms. Uh, I bet if I went down and turned on Lifetime or the Disney Network, I'd find one right now. Well, here, um, here's some good news. They're working on a Descendants 2. So I would say instead of wasting your time with Gemma and the Holograms, just wait for Descendants 2 to come out. Uh, yeah, all right. Issues of dead villains having children aside. <laughs> Yeah, that never gets that never really gets addressed. It's like Disney's response to all of that is no, they didn't really die, so uh, we can do other stuff with them later. Because it's Disney, and no one ever can really die. Well, Except for Mufasa, that. that poor bastard's dead. I think, um, yeah, much like uh, Uncle Ben and uh, Batman's parents. But um, I think Disney's response to our question of continuity is where Disney motherfuckers continuity schmontinuity. What are you going to do? Not watch it? <laughs> I'm, guess what? My, my, my kid loves the Descendants movie, and she's, she's big on singing Rotten to the Core around the house. Like I said, my daughter is all healed. Um, you know what she's never asked me during any part of that movie? Hey, I thought Maleficent was dead. Eh, and you know, if you're appealing to kids, you don't. Ha- dealing with death is not something that is high on their priorities. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, so, all right, what do we got know, next week, Mark? We're off. Um, I'm at a wedding all this weekend, and um, 
I think the only thing coming out this weekend is that that was worth the shit was uh, the Scout Survival Guide to the Zombie Apocalypse. I'll tell you in a minute. List of film 2015. Um, I don't have anything on the schedule. And like I said, I think the only thing that was out this week was um, the Scout's Guide to the Zombie Apocalypse, but I'll tell you in a moment. Uh, we're not back again until the following week, and the first thing that we're doing is Spectre. But, yeah. Um, yeah, we have two movies coming out, one of which is getting terrible reviews, uh, and that is Our Brand is Crisis by Take a Wild Guess. Take, take a wild guess which studio? Warner Brothers. How did you guess? Because their movies have been nothing but deep fried ass this year. <laughs> they did. Hey, man, they did great with The Hobbit last year and some other movies. This year, Warner Brothers couldn't hit the broadside of an aircraft carrier. Look, their one financial success can be attributed to the fact that Dwayne The Rock Johnson is freaking awesome. Correct. <laughs> um, so, yeah, the only thing coming out this weekend is Our Brand is Crisis and Scout's Guide to the Zombie Apocalypse. Um, if you would like to take the trek to Salt Lake City to go see that and want to review it with someone, be my guest. You're on your own. Nah, none of those appeal to me. Uh I don't like Sandra Bullock, and after seeing a couple of trailers for Scouts vs. Zombies, I'm going to go ahead and pass. Plus, again, apparently I'd have to drive an hour to see it, so uh, get bent. Um, however, on November 6th, both Spectre and the Peanuts movie come out, so we'll be reviewing uh, first Spectre uh, on Veterans Day, November 11th. That's the next time um, Robert and I will be together reviewing movies. And the week after that, we'll be reviewing the Peanuts movie. We're taking the the day off before uh, Thanksgiving um, to go see The Good Dinosaur. That's when that comes out. It comes out November 25th, and then we'll review it a week later. Um, So that's the next three dates for our reviews. We've got Spectre on November 11th, the Peanuts movie on November 18th, and then The Good Dinosaur is December 2nd. All right, sounds good. I think the week after The Good Dinosaur, we're doing our year-end wrap-up, and then to actually close out the year, Mark will gush over Star Wars, and I will be all meh. (laughs) Um, We're not doing anything on the 9th. Uh, We'll be doing it on the 16th. Okay. Is our year-end movie review. And then, yes, The Force Awakens, the 23rd, and then The Hateful Age is the 30th. So right before Star Wars and Quentin Tarantino, we're going to do our year-end wrap-up, but, you know, that's fine. And again, Mark will gush over Star Wars. I will be rather nonplussed if I had to guess. <laughs> it's going to be terrific. I really hope it fails miserably, just what? so I can laugh at the nerd rage. You, first of all, you sound like a certain somebody that I know. Second of all, you know that's not going to happen. It's already it, they fucking crash every single movie site that sells tickets. Um, first of all, I have to talk about that for one second. So, I believe it was last Monday, uh, tickets were set to go on sale for The Force Awakens after the trailer dropped during Monday Night Football, which was during halftime, which means tickets shouldn't have gone on sale until about 10 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, roughly. That's what we were told. That's what all of us sitting at our computers were waiting for. I dozed off about 8 o'clock, woke up at 9 to to my friend hysterically calling and texting me saying tickets have already gone on sale and I can't get them. Every single movie site is down. 
what proceeded from there was several hours of refreshing the AMC movie page, trying other theaters, <laughs> and c- continually getting error messages, going on my phone, trying the app, and the end result of this was my friend and I both got two sets of tickets to the Walt Disney World premiere and after party of The Force Awakens, and two sets of tickets to the Brandon AMC uh, 20. <laughs> so, because we couldn't get, because uh, the, there were so many problems with their servers, and, they, and there were so many people trying to order tickets, that even though I had successfully ordered tickets, I never got a confirmation until the servers caught up with the orders several hours later. So I, and let so me I say that. Let I, me rephrase, because I know that movie's going to make money. Even the awful Star Wars movies made money. It's already made money. They've already. I know. I said it will make money. I'm. I'm okay with that. The pre-sale tickets like have already set a record. They said. Well, of course they went on pre-sale three weeks before anyone else has ever had them on sale. Of course they shattered all those records. Well, the Avengers went on sale two months before uh, their their movie debuted, and they didn't do this kind of numbers. Well, that's because all the nerds had to wait for Will Wheaton's appear. Uh, <laughs> excuse me, they had to wait for Will Wheaton's opinion on the movie to be known. Sure. Just keep digging there. All you guys have already made up your minds. And look, when J.J. Abrams way over J.J. Abrams this movie, I'm going to laugh at you all. <laughs> I just want to know. People have asked a couple of questions. Um, why aren't we doing the Hunger Games? Because I haven't seen any of the previous Hunger Games movies, and I don't feel the need to start now. I'm going to save that for a long road to ruin somewhere in the future. Uh, the next uh, question. I don't care enough <laughs> to watch them and review them with someone besides you. I've never but, voluntarily seen... No, I went to see the first one in theaters with the rest of my family because they kind of dragged me to it. I didn't see the second one in theaters. I saw it while donating plasma. And I haven't seen the first half of the final one because, hey, guess what? Your movie, your story did not need to be split into two movies, you cash whores. <laughs> um, next one that people have been asking about is, are we going to review Creed, which is the Rocky uh, and offshoot? No, Michael B. Jordan sucks. And I have no well, desire to watch him on screen. Well, the other reason why is I try to only do one movie a week. Um, I don't, I, you know, we did, we did it this way because we thought it would be, a, you know, a fun thing to do to do two movies. But, you know, also I knew I wanted to take my daughter to go see Gem on the Holograms for her. And I, <clears throat> and I try to, I, you know, and I, and the whole thing with this, with this podcast is to stick with the franchise movies. You know, we're not, we're not. <laughs> This is why we didn't do the Tom Hanks, Steven Spielberg movie. You know, we ain't doing off here. Um, that being said, Creed comes out the same day as The Good Dinosaur. So what am I more likely to see, seeing if I've got kids? You know, the new Pixar movie or fucking Creed, as brought to you by Warner Brothers? Mm. I can tell you that personally, uh, again, I don't care much for Michael B. Jordan's career choices. I think he chooses bad movies to be in. Consequently, I avoid them. I don't need to see another movie with Rocky. I was fine with Rocky Balboa closing out that entire series. And I can tell you how it's going to go, too, because I'm psychic like that. Well, to answer my wife's question, will we, will we be reviewing Alvin and the Chipmunks, The Road Chip? Because you know Hell damn well. Hell no. 
<laughs> you're going to have to take your daughter to this. And I said, not only am I not taking Lily to go see Alvin and the Chipmunks, the fucking road chip, but it comes out the same day as Star Wars. No. <laughs> Just no. Hey, hey, candy bar. Yeah, no, look, Alvin and the Chipmunks was a horrible idea to revive as a hybrid CGI live action movie franchise. That being said, at least the first one, uh, I don't even want to say it didn't suck, because it sucked. It was what it was supposed to be. It was stupid computer chipmunks singing, Jason Lee going, man, at some point I had a career. (laughs) I'm pretty sure I can watch him I can watch that thought go through his head in every one of those movies. However, if you were going to do it, that was about as good as it could ever possibly hope to be. Then you made sequels that got worse and worse. See, two was just bad, and then you had, what, chipwrecked? Yeah, I don't know. I don't follow this shit. And now you have the road chip. It's just a... Who the hell is going to see these movies that they keep getting made? Children. Children do. Parents! Listen, listen. My daughter expressed interest in seeing this movie, and I said, go with your mother. This is not happening. Parents, do better. Your kids deserve better than this movie. Ugh. Anyway, the long and the short of, are we going to actually review Alvin and the Chipmunks? No. No. If somehow I get my, my arm twisted into taking my daughter into going to see Alvin and the Chipmunks, the road chip, it's not going to matter. I'm not reviewing it anyway. We'll be too busy reviewing Star Wars. Which I imagine you will bring up exponentially after the fact. I, I imagine we're going to try to review The Hateful Eight, and you're going to start reviewing The Force Awakens again. I may not do that, but I will tell you that'll be our first two-hour uh, podcast only focusing on one film, because I'm going to have to talk about the after party as well. I will do my best to limit my responses and my thoughts to two-word sentences. <laughs> okay. Just to Thank counterbalance you your verbosity. Um, so for future reference, if you look at the calendar of movies coming out and you're wondering, well, what are they doing? Um, you know, it, it, like, for example, in January, um, there's the 13 Hours of Secret Soldiers of Benghazi, the Fifth Wave, Norm of the North, um, and Ride Along 2. If I were going to do any of those, it would end up being Ride Along 2 because it's part of a franchise, or Norm of the North because it's a kid's movie. Um, but we're not doing any of those. <laughs> well, my vote would actually be for 13 Hours. And there's, then there's that problem. Well, and and here's, let me be very clear about why I kind of want to see that movie. It's a very interesting story, and I'm actually somewhat familiar with the actual events. Not deeply familiar, but passingly. And two, Michael Bay can actually make a decent movie when put within a framework to do so. Mm -hmm. And looking at some of the other people involved with that movie, the actors, the screenwriters... I think that that movie might actually be good, or at the very least, very enjoyable. And I haven't said that about a Michael Bay movie since, 
Oh, either Armageddon or The Rock, and I can't remember which one came out first. Well, look, you know, we um, we already have our list for next year, and, you know, the, the idea was to focus on the big franchise movies, focus on the, the big studio movies. That's not to say, you know, he can't, you know, if like with Crimson Peak, um, I knew that was going to be a big movie for that weekend. I just knew I was going to go see it. Um, and it turned out not to be quite so big for the weekend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, true. Yeah, October's kind of sucking for movies in terms of how well they do. But and look, like The said, Martian's enjoying its third week on top. Um, yeah, the, the idea is to stick with sort of you know the big franchise, the big weekend winners, the big uh, the big studio movies. So that's what we do here. You yeah, know, we that, go that, for the very rarely will you and I delve into a smaller release or you know something that we just think we might love dearly. We prefer to hit the. Major yeah. Um, last uh, last summer, uh, I wanted to go see Dope, and as it turns out, I just rented it and watched it with my wife, and I loved it. It's it's, it's awesome, but it's but it doesn't fit into what this podcast is about. This podcast is about the big franchise movies. So there you go. Plus, if you would have made us review Dope, I would have had to watch it, and then I would have had to sit here, and we would have wound up arguing about it. <laughs> I'm not going near that one with a 10-meter camel prod. Look, I, I'm just on record. Most comedies that are released, most large-budget, wide-release comedies don't appeal to me. And I'm okay that, with that. I made my peace with it. That was an indie film. That was that was the reason why I didn't twist your arm about it, was, was Dope was an indie movie. Eh, either way, it looks not. it looks just too stupid for me. And yeah. I might be wrong about that. My perception, based on what I saw in previews, might be inaccurate. So the other thing of it is, is I can't go to the movies 52 weeks a year. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a chunk of change. And until we get paid for this. Right. So the other limitation to our list of movies that we're doing is, I mean, and we've got a fairly extensive list for next year. I mean, um, this started off with four or five movies for an entire summer and has blown up into, what, what 30 movies next year? I, there were just some weeks. There are just some weeks we had to skip. So our so our first movie that we're reviewing for the 2016 won't start until January 29th. It's Kung Fu Panda. <laughs> I actually and here's the crazy thing about that. I actually haven't seen Kung Fu Panda two. And neither have I. Um, we, we watched Kung Fu Panda because when we saw the trailer for Kung Fu Panda three um, during I believe it was season Hotel Transylvania or um, wherever it was we saw on the drive-in. My kid went fucking crazy. This is my son now, my one-year-old. Um, he's uh, 18 months right now. And this was about a month or so ago. And he saw the trailer for Kung Fu Panda 3 and was screaming and running around the minivan. <laughs> we, had, we, uh, we were sitting in the back of the minivan. We had the seats down. We were watching, this drive -in. We were watching the movie at the drive-in. And he sees the panda and just thought it was the greatest thing ever. So I'm like, all right, Kung Fu Panda it is. And then we watched the first one so that he, you know, he understood what it was he was watching. And then, see, for a one-year-old, he seemed to enjoy it. My daughter thought it was funny, too. And, you know, it's only not her speed. So, yeah, Kung Fu Panda 3. That's our first movie we reviewed for 2016. Followed by Pride, yeah. Prejudice, and Zombies. I'm worried about that movie. I still have not seen Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter, by the way. It's a fine enough, you know, goofy spectacle movie. If you catch it on Redbox or something, or it comes up on Netflix, I'd say go for it. 
Um, so when we get a little bit closer to the end of the year, like during our our, um, our end of the year roundup, we'll go through the whole list of what we're going through next year. Duly approved by Robert. You know, I didn't twist his arm too much <laughs> with these movies. I'm sure and, he, uh, and there's a few open slots in the <laughs> year as well. Uh, there's one. There's one like week in October where. Our options currently, if we want to review something, are Gambit or Monster High. I'm well, I just kind of, I'll be seeing both of those. I'm just kind of really hoping something better gets released on that particular date. Okay. Well, if, the, if these folks at Fox don't get going, they're going to miss their release date for, for Gambit, and it's going to end up getting moved back. I'm relatively sure that movie's never actually going to get made. You'd probably be right, but then you're going to, suck seeing Monster, you're going to be stuck seeing Monster High. If you tell me I have to watch either Monster High or Channing Tatum's horrible Cajun accent, I'm probably going with Monster High. <laughs> All right, we'll jump off that bridge when we get to it. Let's take us home, Robert Winfrey. Indeed, we will. All right. Mark, uh, is tomorrow the uh, wrap-up of Jaws on the Long Road to Ruin? You know, I may be the last, I may be the only person on Earth who thought Jaws 3 was better than Jaws 2. You may be. Uh, yeah. I was doing the I'm going to go that's ahead and that's... say, if that's the criteria for human beings living on this planet, you probably are. <laughs> I, uh, I'll talk more about this tomorrow, but I enjoyed the plot of, of three. I mean, I can't say it was a better made movie or anything like that, but I tell you, I was bored shitless during, uh, during the second one. You know, I felt it was too similar to the first, but this one, this was like Jurassic World with sharks. You know, yeah, we'll have an bar. underground aquarium and Mario Van Peebles. <laughs> Mario Van Peebles? Yeah. I don't remember Jaws 3. I might be thinking yep. of 4 then. Uh, the black guy yep. who's in charge of the aquarium? That would be Louis Gossip Jr., sir. Uh, oh, okay. Sorry, sorry. I... Sorry, sorry. My mistake. The point being, even Louis Gossip Jr. has made fun of that movie. And when you look at the films that man has been in, it says something. <laughs> Dude, <laughs> Jaws 3 is awesome. Okay, again, it's like Jurassic World with sharks. It's fantastic. Yeah, again, I'm not a big fan of Jurassic World, but... Oh, let's not get into that conversation. So, yeah, hey, look, night... I, I have nothing against it. It's... Uh, and again, listen to our review of it wherein I air my grievances and express I, what I think the movie did right and what I think it did wrong. Um, that being said, tomorrow night, nine o'clock, Sean Comer and I will finish our, uh, finish our October horror review, uh, Jaws three and four. I actually haven't watched four yet. I'll be watching it tomorrow. Sometime, <laughs> after, I, <laughs> sometime after I take my kid to Jimbery. You're going to watch Jaws for the revenge. I'm going to laugh at you. <laughs> and, um, and then I, we got uh, just a couple of things. Um, go, go back in the archives. We have our first part of the Jaws review, Jaws uh, 1 and 2. And um, also on the Metal Jaws Hammer. Jaws 1, one of the, the single greatest man versus nature movie ever made. Yeah. Um, also, uh, last Thursday, Robert Cooper and I reviewed uh, Thoughts on Black Wanderer, something, something, something. Um, something, something, Friday, something. Dark side. Yes, we reviewed uh, the new clutch. Next month um, is our last 
no, we have two shows before the end of the year. I'm only doing one show in the month of November, and that is uh, the best of Limp Biscuit. Yes. That'll be a short show. <laughs> it's going to be a two-hour extravaganza. I can't wait. Um, yeah, we've got, <clears throat> on November 5th, Long Road to Ruin, the Daniel Craig uh, Bond movies to help uh, get us in the mood there, Spectre. Um, on the 12th, Metal Hammer of Doom, The Best of Limp Bizkit. On the 19th, Long Road to Ruin, The Chronicles of Riddick. We're taking Thanksgiving off because I'm not allowed to do podcasts on Thanksgiving, which is, yeah, which makes sense. Um, on December 3rd, Long Road to Ruin, The Mighty Ducks, which I believe is our end of the year show. And uh, that's actually it for me. So our, my last Thursday show is December 3rd, and then the 10th, the 17th, uh, Christmas Eve and um, New Year's Eve. Uh, no podcasts, you know, taking a break. Uh, the only thing that we got going on is this Wednesday show where we're do- reviewing movies. And then uh, we'll start fresh again in December. Um, looks like we're going to be starting off with uh, Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit, or the Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, in one of those two orders, and then in February, I'm very, I'm very excited about this. By the way, I am very excited that in February we'll be celebrating Black History Month here on the Rattledge and Broadcasting Network, as Long Road to Ruin brings you both the Shaft trilogy and the Beverly Hills Cop trilogy. So two shows. So you're telling me I need to do a show on Everyone Loves a Bad Guy focused on black villains. Uh, you could have just gone black people. I knew everyone loves a bad guy. Not all black people are evil, you racist. <laughs> oh, you don't want to go see Dope, but I'm the racist. Okay, sure. I don't want to see it because it's a comedy. It's set in the it's 80s. <laughs> no, um, yeah, we'll be, um, well, this, at the, in February, we've got a, we're also reviewing Deadpool and, you know, actually, yeah, Pride, Prejudice, and Zombies and Deadpool. So, you know, Fried Fresh and Zombies, Deadpool, Shaft, Beverly Hills Cop. It's going to be an exciting February. You know, it occurs to me also that I need to do a show dedicated specifically to female antagonists. And if I ever, ne- if I, if nothing else, podcasting has absolutely killed my chance of running for public office. Because I'm going to wind up hosting a show entitled Everyone Loves a Bad Guy, Evil Women. <laughs> Just you think about that for a minute. <laughs> Every, everybody loves a bad guy. Binders full of women. Uh, speaking of oh, everyone yeah. loves a bad guy, it actually is coming back this Friday. I, unless I, I am bleeding it. from my eyes. At this point, if you don't start doing shows, I'm going to dedicate Fridays to wrestling, to recording wrestling, since you know, Casual Heroes seems to have shot itself in the head. You know, if you wanted to do maybe an every other week thing with my show and a wrestle uh, cast type thing, I wouldn't necessarily be opposed. Here's the problem. I don't want to record on Fridays consistently. Oh, so you want uh, others to record on wrestling on Fridays. Gotcha. No, didn't say that either. Um, <clears throat> basically, <coughs> excuse me. Am I gonna, I'm not adding wrestling to the schedule. First of all, um, in February, Sean wants to start doing his show, which we already don't have room and schedule for. Uh, I'm not going to start trying to throw wrestling in there, too, because ultimately that's going to result in me having to cancel a show. And I don't want to do that this easily. So. All right. Well, anyway, I'm back this Friday. 
Uh, in honor, at least partially, of Toby, I'm going to be dedicating this. Uh, this particular show will be themed around yeah, villains you can't see. And yeah. I'm looking horror. forward to having a. What was that? The unseen horror. Yeah. I'm looking forward to having some fun with that one. I don't have a co-host lined up yet, but I'm open to the possibility. Uh, I will also be closing out that episode with a first for that show. You see, I read IMDb's list of top 25 horror movies of the last 25 years. Yeah. As rated (laughs) by... It's the top 25 horror movies of the last 25 years. So horror movies since 1990. With, as rated by the IMDb users. I can only surmise the following about the IMDb user community. You're a bunch of idiots. (laughs) For the love of all that's holy, you include Sleepy Hollow and Sweeney Todd neither of which I consider horror movies, but somehow completely omit Scream and Paranormal Activity. You completely omit The Silence of the Lambs. Now, if you want to argue that movie's status as a horror movie, fine. But you must likewise disqualify American Psycho, which placed quite highly on their list. Morons. So, I'm going to give you the top 25 horror movies of the last 25 years. In honor of the Halloween season. So, first list coming your way in the history of Everyone Loves a Bad Guy this Friday. Stay tuned yeah, I'm for sure that. You, it should be interesting. I'm sure, I'm sure you can get Ben or um, Jason on there for that. Or I'll Jesse. Yeah. I will find someone. Someone will be on the show with me. Or I will talk to myself for an hour. I'm not afraid to do it. I've done it in the past. Uh, you can also find me this Sunday at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time hosting the 411 Ground and Pound radio show. Myself and Jeff Harris, who you heard earlier on this show, will be previewing UFC Fight Night 77, Old Man Hendo, taking on uh, the no longer chemically-fueled Vitor Belfort. This fight's going to suck. So I, well, I'm going to, I can't imagine Hendo doesn't knock him out. Hey, the last time they fought, Vitor knocked him out, and they were both on TRT, so... You take them both off TRT, and you're never quite sure. I, I'm going to go. I'm, I vote Hendo all the way. Uh, I imagine you would, seeing as, you know, you grew up together in the mid-50s talking about how you wished you could have fought the Nazis. <laughs> that's, that's Pat. No, Pat wishes he fought the Germans in World War One alongside Bruno Sammartino, who single-handedly won the Battle of the Bulge in less than five hours. Nobody knows what we're talking about. Anyone who knows history knows what we're talking about. I mean, granted, that no excludes no the entirety of no our one, listening audience. But. No one knows these people we're talking about. If you don't end this show, I'm going to come to Utah and punch you square in the mud. You're not coming to Utah. The altitude would kill you. <laughs> Especially if you have you heard my lungs tonight. Jesus. Yeah, that's kind of where I'm getting that from. You know, heal up, and uh, then you can come see me. Or I can come down there and run circles around you before dying of, you know, sweat. Because you guys have humidity out the wazoo. You'd probably be tackled and eaten up by the palmetto bugs. Entirely possible. All right. So, for Mark Radlich, that's going to wrap us up. For Mark Radlich, I'm Robert Winfrey, reminding everyone out there to be well, be safe, and behave. We have a new outro theme, because this is what every studio executive 
tears 24-7 when they're not listening to the sound of their own voice. 